Blog Talk Radio. We lost Mark. Do the Mark. You have to intro. We lost Jesse for a minute or two here. <laughs> Did you stop it? Did you stop the music? Yeah. God damn it, Winfrey! Hello, and welcome to a shitastic and uh, beginning to what should hopefully be a better podcast. This is Alan Mormont, and I am not the host. Uh, your mandated reporter, and frankly, I'm mortified at how this is beginning, Mr. Mark Rattledge. Uh, our actual host, who uh, leads us in the We got him. We got him. He's back. He's back. Oh, my God. Shut up. <laughs> what are you, trying to do an intro here or something? Yes, you asshole. <laughs> Jesus, why are all of that? Uh, anyway, our usual uh, host who gets us started with the literature part of this podcast, Jesse Starcher, got accidentally disconnected but I believe we have him now. I think so. Yeah. Jesse Starcher, are you there? I am. I am here. Two seconds into the intro, and then I get disconnected. you got to love it. Yeah, well, I'm glad to Blog Talk Radio. I blame, hey, uh, you want to pull this? I blame British rock and roll. You want to pull this podcast? You want to pull this podcast out of the fucking toilet and get on with it? <laughs> I guess we can give it a shot. Ladies and gentlemen... Boys and girls, welcome to another, the third installment for Alan Moore Month. This is a very special night. Now, not only are we three quarters of the way through this, this uh, you know, nothing but unicorns and smiles uh, going, <laughs> going through the literature that Alan Moore has bestowed upon us, but tonight my friends, is the two-year anniversary of my own comic book podcast right here on the Rattelich and Broadcasting Network. That is source material. And I cannot think of any better way than to spend it with my good friends here. You know, two years ago, if you would have said, hey, Jesse, you're going to have a comic book podcast that lasts for two years, and on the night of your two-year anniversary, you're actually going to be on a podcast with None other than the man you just heard there earlier, his name is Mark Radlich, and none other than the, the great 411 ground and pound host himself, Robert Winfrey. I would have said, oh man, I cannot wait, two years can't get here fast enough. And then if you would have said, no, no, that ain't it, 
that's not it, Jesse. You got to understand. <laughs> you have a third person you're going to be on the podcast with, and his name is Ronnie Adams. What do you think of that? And I'd be like, I don't know who the hell that is. See, two <laughs> years ago. <laughs> two years ago. Two years ago, I had not met Ronnie Adams at that time. It, t- it, it took us a couple months before we actually got our minds together and started putting more and more work into this thing we call source material. But let's go ahead and get on with the subject of this show. First off, Mark Radlich, did you tell the people how you were doing tonight? Are you doing okay? Well, until Winfrey um, forgot how podcast work and just started, you know, butting in and stopping music without cues or anything. I was doing great. Uh, now I'm a little, uh, I'm a little flabbergasted. I'm a little, I'm a little. Oh. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying That'll to hold pass. it together. That'll pass, It'll my pass. friend. That'll pass. We're going to get into the groove here real quick. Let me go ahead and bring on Robert Winfrey, sir. How are you doing? Don't listen to Mark Radlich. I know you don't most of the time, but I mean, don't let him give you a hard time. How you doing tonight, man? I'm good. I can fluster Mark. Uh, makes me happy. <laughs> That puts a smile on anybody's face. And Ronnie Adams, buddy, I'm glad to know you for a year and a half at least, or a little bit more. But man, how are you doing tonight? I am I'm unrecognizable and um forgettable, apparently. <laughs> no, he's unforgettable. <laughs> no, My forgettable. man you all no, that's I'm good, okay. Man. You doing all right? Uh, how, how's, uh, how's the physical media in the mansion you're living in? Just got to get that out of the way. I live in a mansion. <laughs> a mansion. <laughs> and he enjoys his physical media. Oh, boy. Well, and okay. I'm shunned for it. Yeah. You, you're an outcast, my friend. Um, so this evening, this evening, our third literary tome from Alan Moore is one none other than V for Vendetta. Uh, So uh, for those of you, I don't know if you've listened to the previous two shows or not, but let me go ahead and give you a quick intro as to what the purpose of our show for Alan Moore Month is. What we're going to do is we're going to get a little bit into the discussion of the book tonight, and then we're also going to discuss the movie. Each one of these uh, works that we've discussed has uh, at first been a book and then was adapted into uh, into a film. So we're going to kind of talk, you know, number one, about the theme of the book and, and, and the theme of the story. We're also going to talk about the movie and what we liked about the movie as well. So I hope you guys, uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to the first two episodes, you're just hopping in here. The third episode, that's perfectly fine. Go back and listen to the previous two where we covered Watchmen and the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So Alan Moore puts together this uh, v for Vendetta in the early 80s, I believe, um, a lot of talk about how this story was a kind of his, his thoughts on the Margaret, Margaret Thatcher administration over there in jolly good old England. And we're going to kind of talk a little bit about that tonight, but there are some overreaching themes in this particular book that and this in this story that are, I mean, really, really can be, uh, you know, can be, I guess I would say, you could look at these and see parallels to today uh, and in our recent times. This is a very, uh, this is a very timeless story in my opinion, but we'll get into that. Let me go ahead real quick before we get into our discussion. I have got, Mark Radlitz, are you ready for this? 
you always you always say give us 50 words or less okay well i i wrote 109 so be ready here we go (laughs) here is here is too much here is my description of v for vendetta all right v for vendetta is a story about a victim of a rather fascist government and its abhorrent practices Escaping from a horror-filled government resettlement camp, our protagonist, V, embarks upon exacting revenge amongst all that were involved. Along the way, V rescues and later befriends a young woman by the name of Evie. Evie could best be characterized as a person struggling to make ends meet in this harsh world that she finds herself in. We are then taken along the ride as V opens Evie's eyes and England's to the oppressive government that is in place and how fear of such government may not be so necessary. So there's my 109-word summary of V for Vendetta. I think that's like 109 words. That's like less than half the pages that uh, V for Vendetta has. But don't get me wrong, folks. It's a great story. So let's talk a little bit about the creators. Of course, our writer is Alan Moore, uh, the great Alan Moore, who's, who's wrote so many tremendous stories. We won't get into too much about him, and if you guys have any insight about Alan Moore and this particular story, we'll definitely let you guys say your piece. Uh, however, our artist, okay, now this graphic novel, uh, from what I understand, is put together of a lot of, it's a, a lot of little stories that came out in, uh, and I should have looked this up, I think it was in, pre, uh, it was like backstories of comics. Uh, I don't know if it was an anthology or, but it, but they, they put all these stories together. That's one of the things I noticed with this graphic novel was the fact that there wasn't like – we were so used to Watchmen and maybe even League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. You had these chapter breaks. That really doesn't happen in here. All you get is kind of like the whole story runs together, and every once in a while – well, every, a good bit you'll see a title of the new, of the new chapter you're running into. Uh, but as for the art itself, I want to go ahead and give props to David Lloyd who uh, he has uh, – he's, he's done a tremendous job on here. This is the early 80s. As far as his career goes, I was looking at some of the stuff that he has done in the past. Um, one of the things that struck my eye, and I know, Ronnie Adams, you'd be all over this. If you can catch these back issues, man, go ahead and do so. But apparently he did some work on Doctor Who comics, I believe. Uh, at yeah. least <laughs> – Doctor Who magazine, uh, and uh, and may have even partnered with Alan Moore, according to what I was reading here, with some uh, great Doctor Who stories. I'm all about that, by the way. Um, And then Hellblazer. Uh, I think you mentioned Hellblazer there, Winfrey. Uh, uh, David Lloyd has his hands in some Hellblazer stories as well. Looks like early 90s stuff. Um, Let's go ahead. I mean, Ronnie Adams, David Lloyd, you got any – I mean, it doesn't look like this guy has an extensive resume. What do you think of his work in V for Vendetta? Anything that uh, strikes you here? I, hmm, that's a good question. Um, I like to ask when those. I was not, Yeah, I was, was not prepared <laughs> to answer. Um, <laughs> no. Um, visually, I think um, it's uh, it's a little different. It's a little more realistic than I, uh, that I re- from what I remember. Like I said, it's been a little while since I've actually read the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, from what I can remember, um, I thought it was really good art. Yeah. That's it, an intelligent, that's intelligent. Uh, really good. It's all right. With- <laughs> I think, I think that's all right. Um, it seemed like there wasn't a whole lot of, and David Lloyd's probably separate from the colorist here, 
but yeah, as it as, wasn't as flashy as as like your superhero comics. Yeah, this is definitely I, something you could see from the eighties, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, one of the things I probably failed to mention in my summary was the fact that uh, this this V character that we're getting ready to talk about is almost uh, uh, he's faceless. He wears yeah. he wears a mask. Uh, now let's go ahead and we'll maybe break down some character roles here and what you guys think of them. Winfrey, we'll start with you, man. Uh, v, you know the the main character himself, the main protagonist. You, what's your thoughts on uh, Alan Moore's representation of uh, this uh, this hero here? Well, V's a really interesting character in both uh, the iterations we're going to talk about. Actually, the differences that happen that occur between the characters in the shift from the book to the movie are very. Uh, a couple of them are pretty good, but you can also tell they're clearly the product of trying to make uh, this a much more accessible yeah. character in a lot of ways because the character of V within the context of the novel is I mean they, they label him a terrorist and that's not inaccurate mm-hmm. it's just there's a there's a very important uh, phrase that seems to have removed itself from our cultural lexicon when it comes to these things and I don't know exactly when it happened but there exist such things as terrorist governments uh, you know things that are so totalitarian, so invasive that they themselves, you know, function via terror rather than consent of the people. At which point, you know, fighting them via terror and you know, uh, becomes more acceptable. It's not nearly as as cut and dry an issue as you know, we, especially Americans, tend to think of it. And there is the old adage, of course, that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, v in this instance is great because he remains so anonymous for the major. I mean, for a character who is as front and center as he is to the story, he is essentially anonymous. You never see his face. You never know his name. You never really know his backstory other than the immediately preceding events that led to him taking up his cause. And that's very deliberate. I mean, the whole final exchange between him and Evie in the book is meant to be representative of that. He, it doesn't matter who he is. It's what he stands for. And V is a relatively articulate, interesting character to put forth anarchy as a political philosophy to those who are not familiar with it beyond uh, the barest trappings. I mean... And that's very helpful for me. I mean, this was one of the important books that after I read it, I actually became more interested in what anarchy is rather than simply because it gets paired with chaos in in, discussion frequently. And they're actually quite different things. Mm -hmm. There are certainly similarities to them, but there are differences. And these, as a character, is very good at articulating those. He says a lot of interesting things. He speaks mostly in iambic pentameter. Uh, a lot of his dialogue is literary allusion uh, or you know, allusions to other things. I think the first thing he says to the bishop before he kills him in the book is, uh, oh, l- please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of 
Wealth, uh, wealth and taste. Which is, of course, a line from the Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, V's a very interesting character in that regard, and it's not, it's a really interesting challenge from both the artistic and the writing standpoint to convey things with him when he's just wearing you know, a Guy Fox mask, and it becomes even more impressive when Hugo Weaving is able to do it in the movie. Uh, real briefly, David Lloyd did do some of the coloring on this. Okay. Uh, the other, the mm-hmm. other two colorists were Steve Whitaker and uh, this is uh, this is an Irish name, so I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Do it with an uh, Irish accent. It makes it that much more fun. I'm not going to do it with an Irish accent. <laughs> uh, uh, Sheban Dodds, and I know I'm mispronouncing that because S I O. B-H has a very different pronunciation from what it looks like phonetically uh, if you're Irish, and I don't know how to pronounce it. I know it's different, but I've not spoken it or heard it spoken enough to feel confident (laughs) in how it's actually pronounced. I hear you. Well, it's funny how you mention Anonymous. Uh, For those of you that have not read this book but have been, you know, a, uh, a purveyor of online for quite a while, which, you know, hey, it's 2016. You, you damn well better be. Um, anonymous might be something that you synonymize with what you see in V for Vendetta because mm-hmm. it's the Guy Fox mask. That is, that is the, uh, you know, that's the representation. Every time you see that online, and it's, it's interesting to try and think, that, or actually, to, to, to contemplate that these guys are taking something from. It's either they're taking it from this work, or they're taking it from you know. Remember, remember the fifth of November. Um, they're taking it from V from Vendetta, from what I've read. Okay, um, Mark Radowitz, I'm glad you're here, sir. What's your thoughts on V? <laughs> hey, remember me? I'm on this podcast. Um, <laughs> Fine. Um, I uh, what I've read of the book, and I'll in the interest of full disclosure, I haven't read the whole thing. But uh, what what I've read of him, um, it's very Morsey. God, Moore is not uh, not perfect in his writing. He is very wordy. Oh yeah. And I feel like he likes to. It's almost like in his works, and this isn't the right phrase, but, but stay with me here. Like he, the phrase, he likes to hear the sound of his own voice. More ah. just like white dialogue for characters, as if, like, he's, he's got all of this stuff that he wants to say, and he, he has these characters that say it for him, and none of them know when, none of them know when to stop talking. And it's distracting, I, I found it. I, I found that as one of the elements of his character to be somewhat distracting. I I don't know how necessary it was, and maybe Winfrey's listening to this and wanting to bang his head in the wall, but I don't know how necessary it was to the overall message of the movie, uh, sorry, of the book. You know, if we're talking about um, fascism versus anarchy, I'm pretty sure you could still get there without going on... 20-minute rambles, uh, you know, before you blow something up or stab someone. 
I mean, I'm not saying he needed to be Jason or anything or Freddy. You know, a little clip here, a little snap there. But, get, you know, get to it. I mean, do we, do we, it's just, it comes across as overdramatic. Because well, because there's something where you've got to hang on. There's something where you've got a very serious subject here that needs to be treated seriously, and the readers, it should you know, should be invoking um, some very deep thought. And I feel like instead of being able to do that, you're just caught up in this guy doing something completely unrealistic. If I come at you, Jesse, in a, in a dark alley and brandish a knife, and then proceed to start quoting Julius Caesar. You're going to run away. You're not going to stand there and let me do it. Or you're going to shoot one of the two. The Americans. You'll probably shoot me. So it just that got on my nerves. Mark, I have to ask, have you started reading from hell yet? <laughs> Dude. Oh, I know what <laughs> you better no, you better have yeah, you better have a damn time machine because I started that in July. I think it was was of when I first originally got. <laughs> I started in July and then I I posted probably about a month ago. I'd finally finished it. Uh, wow. Yeah, if you want to talk about Wordy, we'll definitely be talking Wordy next week. Um, but I think as for V himself, it's it is endearing to the character for him to be so over the top and so such a a you know such a large production uh because number one as we look through this book and the book and the movie you know they are they are decent representations we'll say so as he is put into the internment camp or the 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 uh relocation camp whatever they called it and they proceed to do like crazy experiments on this guy now see we get a nice little flashback origin you know about the middle of the book maybe a little bit before the middle of the book explaining why he's doing this but i mean he goes through some absolute hell which most likely is going to make you crazy in in the first place um Especially if you you've come across a decision that hey okay well it's time for me to start you know blowing up buildings and opening up people's eyes. He's come to some point in his life where he's just like he he either can't deal with it or he's dealing it with it in his own way. And I think that is why we get this you know V you know V for vendetta and every almost every other word in that uh, tirade that he does starts with a V. Uh, he clearly put some thought into this, and he's very smart. He's not a uh, – he's not your run-of-the-mill stupid terrorist. This guy is somebody that has put... – <laughs> well, You're the terrorist, you fucking moron. Idiots. Um, you know, this, this guy has given his, a lot of thought to the way society is. Uh, so he's not stupid, and – the I think the the whole over the top speaking thing, in my opinion, that just you know again that adds that adds to his character. That adds that level of is this guy crazy, or is he like really is he is he really intelligent? Ronnie Adams, what do you think? Is is V for is V a what do you think of that? Do you think he's just uh, is he doing too much here? There's a there's a thin line 
when you write a character like this between intelligence and insanity. I mean, uh, most of your most of your great villains are incredibly intelligent. You know, you think of the Joker, Lex Luthor, all those guys. Is he a villain? I mean, uh-uh. uh, yes and no uh, to a point. Um, obviously, he's he's our hero in this book, but uh, anti-hero, whatever you want to call him. Um, so he's got to you know to 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 say that to go to the extremes of blowing things up and stabbing people to get his point across. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a little he's a little crazy. He's a little touched, but um, he's also incredibly intelligent. Um, but as you say, he's gone through a lot of hell, and uh, and maybe he doesn't. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't know how else to deal with it. So he's a he's a multifaceted, very deep character that um, is very very interesting. What do you think, Winfrey? Well. The styling of this character as unhinged and somewhat debatable in as far as is he a good guy or is he not is very deliberate on the part of Alan Moore. In fact, he's talked about this in the past. His goal was not to necessarily preach the virtues of anarchy from the perspective of a hero, of you know an uncompromised of sorry not uncompromising but of an implacable. Uh, paragon of virtue, V kills people. He mm-hmm. bombs major buildings. He stabs people in the street. He is... Uh, there's some stuff wrong with this guy. <laughs> and that's very uh, that's very intentional in the same way that the officers of the government are not, in the book at least, stock villains. They have character. They have relationships. They have character arcs. They have, they're fleshed out. They're three-dimensional. They're not – this is not, oh, this is the valiant freedom fighter overcoming the corrupt government, and that's how it's going to be. This is a slightly unhinged guy in a clearly unfortunate situation who has gone so far to one extreme that you now begin questioning whether or not – you do have to question his methodology, his message, and things of that nature – and the same is true of the government in the sense that you know these are you know, not good people necessarily they're uh, at least the supreme you know the high chancellor is uh you know pretty substantial racist yeah and and you look at the things they've done this is not a good thing but there's also a bit of well in the book at least England has survived elements of a nuclear war that took place throughout much of the rest of the world and commensurate with the unthinkable happening, hard choices have to be made and okay, we don't agree with all of them, but you know, these are not necessarily evil people. I mean, I don't think a whole lot good about the chancellor, but uh, the most human element of the government is probably Finch. who's also the mm-hmm. most interesting yeah, I'd agree with that. Finch being our uh, – he, he's our police detective, correct? Is that uh, uh, mm-hmm. the guy that's – he's, he's kind of like the guy inspector. that's – Chief Inspector. He's the one that's on – he's on the trail of V for our 
uh, ears, eyes, nose, mouth, whatever they call their, their sections of government there. Uh, Finch, just like you said, as he as we watch him go through this particular story, um, you know, I, I find him more of the the guy I identify with in this particular story because he's like, you know, he's the dude that's just, he's working a job. He believes. And I mean, if I was a, you know, if I was working there and I saw some of the stuff that went it down, you know, such as uh, these buildings being blown up, I, of course, the one person I would be mad at is these, you know, the, the responsible party behind that. Uh, but then you really start to comprehend and understand the reasons why this is being done. Uh, and you're a soldier, well, a soldier. You're you're a I don't want to say puppet, but you're a you know you're a part of that government. He works for the government. Um, so let's let's go ahead and Ronnie, do you have? Uh, and, and Chief Inspector Finch here, do you have any any particular uh, tomes you'd like to, or any, any particular insight you'd like to give upon what you thought of his character in any way? Well, the whole situation, there's no real black or white. It's a bunch of gray. It's a bunch of situations you can you have to look at and go, yeah, but um, I may agree with him on some things about the government being you know corrupt, but you don't have to kill people and blow things up. Um, and kill people <laughs> to get your point across. Yeah, you know, um, no matter what, murder is murder. Mm-hmm. I guess you could. You, it would be his stance. Um, there's a certain set of laws he has to go by, and that he has to uphold. Um, and he's trying to do his best to 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 uphold those, even though some of the stuff, I you know. He's the one uh, as well that I put myself in his situation. How would I react to that if I had that job? And, and it was very much of a, a yeah, but you know, yeah, you know, the, these people in higher offices may be lying, maybe you know, corrupt, but there are better ways of doing this than than me, being a terrorist. Let, let me butt in here and, and talk about just the overall mentality of people who live through traumatic times in our in the case of this story, portrayed as accepting uh, the strong leader uh, and then everything that goes with that, there is some psychology to the idea of needing stability in unstable times. Um, You know, when there are bread shortages and riots and water is contaminated and the air is hardly breathable, you don't care anymore about the little freedom. What you want is for somebody to rise up and take control of the situation. And you, you're willing to cash in, speaking in general, general not like you're guy, but um, you're, you're willing to cash in some of your freedom some, for, for just peace of mind, safety, safety of your family. To know that there's a strong man out there keeping the animals that day from harming you and your children. And there's a certain amount of loyalty that goes along with that. You are the one that saved us from the brink of doom. And 
it's not like these things happen overnight. They happen incrementally. And there's arguments put forward for why the good children of a society, and I'm using that as you know, the, the population at large, you know, the, the government is the parent and you're all the good society is the good children. Why you just let the parent lead and take control and people are willing to do that to a degree. And suddenly over the years, you know, you know, as you've given up one thing after another, suddenly you find yourself in this totalitarian nightmare where you have no freedom um, and you have guys, uh, secret police, brutally murdering and raping in the street without anyone there to, uh, to stop them. And you can convince yourself that it's all, we don't want to go back to the dark times. You just learn to sort of accept and accept and accept until you're made to confront it. And I think that's his story. Uh, his story in this, in this book is that he, along with everybody else, took the trip from the darkness into, into perceivably the light. And his arc is when finally sort of shaken and woken up and made to look at the harsh reality of what he and society has allowed to happen, uh, he can't handle it anymore. He has to do something. It's almost unbelievable that he sat and was a part of a government that was doing horrendous things. So um, that's sort of my take on him and, and sort of the society portrayed in the book in general. And I think that's the most appealing thing to me is the idea of we're only going to accept so much and then eventually someone reminds us, oh, yeah, freedom yeah. is the best way to live. That's <laughs> um, true. this way. Uh, and and it, it sort of takes – it takes a guy making a sacrifice like V sometimes to sort of show people, okay, well, you don't have to go into all buildings necessarily, but you do have to stand up and say – we will not accept the government anymore. This government is false. This government is um, uh, this, this government uh, is without any sort of moral integrity, and it has and it has to change. We mm-hmm. no longer live in the society where we're far enough away from the dark that we've gone past the light and we're into dark again. We need to sort of yeah, you need a catalyst, a catalyst to spark that, you know, explosion of revolution, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, let me go ahead. We got a, a special caller here, one guy uh, I, I couldn't wait to hear from. So I believe we have Benjamin J. Cologne on the line. Who uh, I can't wait to hear his input on here. Benjamin, can you hear me? Hello, can you hear me? Ah, uh, yes, sir. Welcome to the show, man. Alan Moore month. You know, I've, I've learned so much from Alan Moore and a lot of it was because of you actually kind of interpreting his stuff for me, which you know, sometimes you need that translator that's down to earth because a lot of this stuff can get pretty heady and by golly, some country boy from Ohio sometimes can't get it. So uh, Benjamin, you, sir, have come on here. I, I, what do you want to talk about, man? Be for vendetta. Yeah, I called in. I noticed that this podcast was grossly underpopulated, so 
decided to weigh in. Um, also, because I, I don't get a whole lot of opportunity to talk about V for Vendetta, and V for Vendetta is one of my favorite stories, uh, comic book or otherwise, of all time. Um, it's just beginning to end. It's uh, it's probably my favorite thing Alan Moore has ever done, um, which is saying something for me, considering how big an uh, Alan Moore fan I am. Um, and, you know, I'm, I don't want to, you know, take up too much real estate on, on this show, but um, I just wanted to weigh in, you know, when the opportunity comes up with, uh, you know, a lot of things that I uh, love about the comic in, in particular. Um, I also, I like the movie, not quite as much as I, as I love the comic, but uh, the movie, I think, is a, is a very good adaptation that has its own uh, interesting uh, diversions and also uh, some you know great similarities when when it's necessary for those to exist um, and um, I guess uh, you know uh, it's hard to know where to start. Um, well, let me let me ask you. I mean, what what was it like when you first read this? Uh, now, usually, you know, I, those are the kind of the questions I asked uh, the people on source material when they get a hold of a book and they first read something. What was it like? Now, Alan Moore is a revolutionary writer. Was that something that hit you immediately after you picked this up? And and I, I assume you read it in graphic novel form straight through. Is that right? Yeah. Um, what'd you think, man? I mean, how, how did it affect you? Can you give us an idea? Um, it's, it, it, uh, what you pick up about Alan Moore's writing, uh, across the board, cause he's worked with a lot of different artists, very, very talented artists, some of the greatest of all time, but you notice, you know, common threads in, in everything that he does. Um, because, uh, as we, We've talked about on source material. Alan Moore is very hands-on with his scripts, and Alan Moore is very, an Alan Moore comic book script is very, very, very dense. Um, <laughs> Indeed. And very detailed and very much, you know, there's a lot of direction given, um, you know, and which is probably intimidating to some artists, and, and you know, you've got to be good to kind of keep up with the guy. And uh, as Mark said, he's got a lot to say. Um, Sometimes he's got more to say than you would think can, uh, you know, efficiently fill up a page. Um, but the storytelling in this book, there, there are very few, there are very few comics that I've ever read in my life. There are very few books of any kind that I've ever read in my life that have elicited a verbal response from me that have elicited and you know an actual physical emotional response from me in the moment that I read them. V for Vendetta is one of those books, um, and I don't know how far into the story we want to get uh, for me to explain which which particular scene that is. Um, Save um, it. Save it. We'll go. We're going to go across our favorite moments here in, a, in just a few before we change it over to uh, movie talk. With Mark Rattlich. Uh, <laughs> so, okay. 
All right. Well, let's do one more character talk here about uh, Evie. You know, we talked about Finch. We talked about V. Uh, I mean, do you have any quick thoughts about V there? Uh, that's probably – I don't want to limit you there, uh, Benjamin. But, you know, if you, what do you think about V as a character? Is this somebody that was just uh, – what, what do you think, man? Um, Ryan actually brought up some, some points that, that I very much agree with in that um, – V in in the comic is a, is a charismatic and Mark also said you know pretty verbose guy in the comic, um, and he has you know there's the thing about Alan Moore writing and, and Alan Moore characters is that most of them are pretty gray and most of them are pretty morally ambiguous and that's kind of the point most of the time, um, where. And V and we can and, and I can get into this more when we talk about particular like scenes and, and my favorite, you know, parts of this book, but V is um he has an ideology, he has a moral code, he has a uh you know, a plan. Uh-huh. But he's still insane. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, <laughs> he's still a madman. Um that's not to say that he's not necessarily, you know, you can, you know, you can ascribe your own, uh, your own moral judgment on, on the things that he's doing and the reasons why he's doing them. But ultimately, um, and we'll get into this more, he's basically, he's, his mission is a suicide mission and he knows it. And it's not completely apparent to everybody, including the reader at first. But the farther you go into the story, you realize uh, everything that he's doing is basically like he knows this is the last thing I'm going to do. And uh, this is, you know, this is going to be, this is going to end with me dead. Uh, But that's okay. Yeah. There is times when I there were times when I was reading this story, looking at it and saying, you know, he knows what he's doing. You could see, you could, you, you could almost see that he he knows that it's it, you, just like you said, it was a suicide mission. I picked up on that a little bit because I was like, how do you think this is going to freaking end, dude? I mean, you, you, yeah, you've got the cover of the mask, okay, and nobody knows who you are, but you keep pressing the issue it's not like this guy you know goes off blows one building up and then he with the purpose of taking the mask off and remain hidden and he can get away scot-free no that's not the case he is out to prove a point and he he proceeds to do so um all right let's talk evie here go ahead go ahead ronnie oh i was gonna say that's kind of where i was going with that um it's almost like he doesn't realize that if he keeps pressing that point if he keeps um, taking the route that he's taken, yes, he will end the the, the tyranny that he has that he so loathes that, mm-hmm. you know, that he he can't. But he's also going to plunge everybody into a darker point. You know, um, yes, the end of the tyranny is there, but also uh, it, if there's no structure at all, then it goes into a, a, a much darker. You know, well, not a much darker, but a different darker point. Of time for that government, um, mm-hmm. it's it's going to be, uh, for lack of a better term, it's going to be anarchy at its worst. Yeah, there wouldn't be much it's of a government chaos. left. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, going to go from anarchy to chaos to, um, 
it's just to pure lawlessness. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk, Evie. Uh, there's so much I want to say. Uh, <laughs> I know we got we, we we definitely don't have three hours on this podcast, and this this book can be discussed honestly at, at five hours easy. Um, Ronnie, let, let's well, I'll start with Robert. Robert Winfrey, uh, what's your thoughts on our our uh, heroine? I guess I mean, you call her a heroine. I don't know if I don't know if we would call her a heroine here. She's she's kind of our. Um, kind of our analog here, human analog for this story is someone that's brought under the wing of V and that's Evie. Uh, can you give us your thoughts on Evie? Well, Evie is an interesting character in the book, much more so than in the movie in numerous, numerous ways. And when we compare and contrast, we can have some fun with that. <laughs> uh, she's just, uh, she's very, you know, if we're, you mentioned she's the human analog. She's very analogous of the society in general, as opposed. I mean, uh, Finch is part of the government, and as you know, the representation of kind of the naivete within that. Then she is the representation of the av- you know, the vox populi, the average person. As she's very young in the book, when we meet her, she's just 16. She's just kind of desperately trying to get by in this world that is just crap. It's just awful. All she wants to do is get by, and she's... When we meet her, she's turning to the world's oldest profession as a means of paying the bills because, well, her government job just ain't cutting it anymore. <laughs> and her and journey... Is... For... Her journey for... That's our uh, near-rape scene for the book. There's only the one, <laughs> but uh, it's Alan Moore, and you can't have an Alan Moore story without at least attempted rape. That's right. Uh, she takes a very interesting journey in the sense that she starts out, you know, very naive, very kind of helpless. Uh, uh, becomes attached to V very quickly. Becomes disillusioned with that. He throws her out because she needs to learn about be, you know being out in the world a little bit if she's going to try and save it later. Uh, her transformation sequence, and this is uh, probably my favorite part of the entire book, are the chapters that deal with her after she's been captured. Uh, just tremendously well written and uh, wonderfully illustrated as well. And then in the end, she actually takes up uh, the physical mantle of V. She doesn't, uh, and this is different from the movie for those of you who haven't seen it, or for, seen it but have not read the book. Uh, after V is mortally wounded by Finch and subsequently dies, she actually dons a the same costume to give the appearance to the general population that, yeah, he's – no, no, report, uh, she actually uses the line, reports of my demise are exaggerated. Of course, uh, you know, a joke on the famous Mark Twain quote. And actually winds up taking, I believe, the inspector Dominic Stone to be – to fill the role that she had in the beginning of the book as kind of learning from, she learned from V now he's going to learn from her and kind of continuing the notion that uh, whoever is behind the mask is not, isn't terribly relevant. It's more what it stands for. And the fact that she goes from a very uh, meek, very unassuming, uh, you you wouldn't look twice at her if you passed her on the street type of character to being, the physical embodiment in many ways of the anarchist movement uh, should tell you a lot about how 
about her character arc because it's one of the most complete and one of the more believable ones in the story. That's all I got. <laughs> did we did we lose Jesse again? I don't know. Can we get a sense of who's still on this podcast? Uh, he's still in the switchboard. Um, that, yeah, I see him. Um, all right, let's let's keep this moving on here. Um, oh, here we go. I got a message from Jesse here, and Jesse says, "I can hear every word." Be you, Jess. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna mute him and then unmute him and see if that works. Jesse, Jesse, just dial back in. I'm gonna exit you from the switchboard. Um, oh yeah, I'll, I'll call back in. Good, good. All right, I'll keep uh, I'll keep things moving. Well, I think the here. next uh, segment we usually do is favorite parts of the comic, so we can probably transition into that, right? Well, hang on, Ben. Did you uh, want to say anything about Evie? Um. Me personally, um, I, I I'm inclined to agree with most of the stuff that uh, that Robert was saying. I try, I tried very hard in terms of the movie not to allow my very long time crush on Natalie Portman color <laughs> my um, opinion of her performance in the movie. Um, that didn't really work. Um, <laughs> She was great. Uh, she was she was good enough to where it almost did make her her performance and her portrayal of Evie in the movie uh, more interesting to me than it was in the book, which is saying something about you know considering how much I love everything in this book. Um, I've never I, I've always thought Alan Moore's kind of weakest point, at least uh, in his books up until going towards the later '90s, was writing women. Um, it works in his favor that Evie's kind of, uh, you know, kind of the audience proxy in this move in in this uh, story, uh, and that plays a, you know, that that plays better towards the end of the story where you know her ultimate character arc is realized than than it does in the beginning. In the beginning, she's she's actually. Fairly, I, I found her fairly uninteresting up until the point where she did get captured. Um, except for you know the the uh, the little brief like you know uh, uncertainty that you know V kind of hinted and then denied that uh, he was her father, which I'm also you know I not that I think Alan Moore would have gone with something quite that corny but uh, I'm also glad that they didn't go that way in the movie either even though the way that they did go I didn't care too much for either oh the ice Spartacus the, thing at the end no um, I, 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 didn't, I didn't mind that part but just sort of the romance that they tried to that they oh, kind yeah, of yeah, I, to the movie that, that didn't yeah I didn't, I didn't well, boy are we going to get there yeah <laughs> Do you, uh, like you said <clears throat> I missed out on a little bit of it there. I was going in now, but do you think that uh, that Evie was in, well in the movie and mostly in the book was a representation of the population as a whole? 
um, you know, to lift the veil off of our eyes to see what's going on around us and kind of a deal, or do you think she was just a specific character that he wrote for before this? Anyone an- before anyone answers that question, the word I was looking for earlier was illegitimate. The government is illegitimate, and, and the people needed to stand up and tear it down. Okay, go on. Were you asking me specifically, uh, Ronnie, yeah, or is um, that just like in general? It's just in general, but yes. Yeah, go for it. I think she, as a character, she started out as uh, as that. She started out as kind of an example of the greater like population and, and sort of how, you know, how indoctrinated they had become into all of the, you know, into the idea of fascism and then, you know, she had kind of her awakening and then she became more of her own character as, as the story goes on. All right. Can I ask a question to the, to the general group? Um, and, and it's based on stuff that I've read outside of the book. Um, uh, doing some reading about what, you know, mainly about why Moore was so upset about the, the film version versus the book. What came out of that was he was very much, with this book, trying to depict um, arguments for and against, and let me back me up if I'm not getting this right, but it was it was a it was sort of a philosophical debate between anarchy and fascism, and it kind of a there's a defense for folks' point of view, and that B is ambiguous and the government is ambiguous, and it's really up to the reader to decide who's right and who's wrong, which is one of his problems with the film was that it was pretty straightforward. He had a guy, you know, who was trying to tear, you know, take, take, take control back from a government that had gone out of control. Um, but here, here's sort of my question, unless there's any vigorous debate about what I just said, and that is, is anarchy even defensible? And I think that's where I struggle with me for Vendetta. Because I read what I've read of it, and read the writings on it via secondary literature um, and watched the film. We had a discussion today in Messenger and I, and I want to go and I kind of want to pick this up into the discussion. Uh, how is anarchy even morally defensible? I mean, it's oh, one that's, of the whole that, points. It's really not that hard to defend anarchy, actually, from a philosophical perspective. No, I want it from a realistic standpoint. Oh, well, this then. No. If you're. <laughs> oh, that's like that's where I'm going with this, and and I want you guys to weigh in. I don't, I don't want to just, just talk all the airtime here, but I'm, this really got to me. Here you have a guy who's like, no, 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 no. I have I have this debate in my mind about fascism and anarchy, and we need to just we need to digest that. We need to think about it. And I'm going the entire time. Are you crazy? I can I can take anarchy is defensible. I can take Am a I stab at it. Huh? What'd you say? Uh, ben, what'd you say? I, I can I can take a stab at it. You know, no pun intended. Well, maybe a little bit of a pun intended. <laughs> um, um, Why don't you just cut it in the bud? Go ahead. From from the I'm talking about this is not necessarily my point of view, but from the point of view of V in the book, um, and I think and I really wish I could find the page in the book where this is said because I know it's said he V's 
defense because V's defense of, of anarchy is is basically his very it's a very idealized and very romanticized uh, view of what anarchy is, which is not necessarily which does not necessarily have any basis in reality given what we know about human nature and human beings. Uh, and what he says is basically uh, basically his concept of anarchy and his idealized romanticized concept of anarchy is basically where there is no need for leadership and there is no need for greater uh, structure, you know, be it government or otherwise. Oh, oh I know and, the line you're talking about, actually. Right. Um, yeah. And uh, that, and, and it's right after chaos starts. He and Evie are talking about it. He says uh, anarchy is without leaders, not without order. Something along those lines. Something, something like that, and where, you know, people, uh, people do not necessarily have to abide by any particular rules, but they are capable of of of, of imposing restrictions upon themselves. Something to that effect, which, you know, I, you know, I can't. You know, I can't possibly be the most cynical person on this podcast, although if I am, I understand. Um, so, you know, knowing what we know about human nature and what we know about human beings, of course, that's not a realistic, you know, uh, idea for, you know, a, a framework of society. But that's his defense. That's how he sees it and how he believes that, you know, uh, that's what he believes is his superior is the superior alternative to uh, fascism and the fascism that's being imposed on the England in which this story takes place. Okay, so I'm going to say something very insulting, okay? And you guys feel free to then say, well, rattle is your crazy person. I, I'm, you know, like long road to ruin. I, if, I, if I think it and it's out there, I'm going to say it. Um, this is, Alan Moore is a fucking child. Okay, this is how a child thinks. It wouldn't it be great if there weren't any rules? And, Mark, you know, really, I would you know, love to look. agree with you, but I've been to way too many college campuses to limit that thinking to children at this point in time. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna devil's advocate this just a little bit. I don't necessarily believe this is 100% Alan Moore speaking through the character. I don't think this is his concrete view of what anarchy is and throughout the story you're not necessarily you know i mean v is ostensibly the protagonist of the story but more kind of puts him in 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 the in the book in the story uh some of the things he does you you're kind of meant to consider very questionable and very suspect and you're not necessarily bent to agree with all of these things that he does I don't think this is 100% more saying this is what I believe and this is what you know which what it should be it's presenting two extremes it's presenting two very extreme ideologies that happen to clash with each other in this story um, realistically I don't I don't think Alan Moore 100% believes it. he's he is he has, you know, uh, he's been pretty vocal about the fact that he's basically an anarchist. Um, I, but this particular type of anarchy that he's presenting in this story, I don't necessarily believe that that's, you know, his direct beliefs, nor do I necessarily, is it important for me to think that 
it is or isn't for for the me to be able to understand what's going on in the story and then enjoy what you know the sort of dynamic that he's set up. Okay. Um, I, I to answer your question, Mark, uh, anarchy is defensible from a practicality standpoint about as much as socialism is. Just to say it isn't. But there's a bunch of morons who tend to think it is. Okay. To, 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 to go to Ben's point, I, I, I will go with you on that. I, I can't for certain say one way or the other, so your explanation is as good as any. However, it, it's kind of like you know debating the merits of the moon is made of green cheese. Well, it's not. We know that. Okay, it's just it just isn't. But I but I believe it is. It might be. But who well, can't we consider it? No, because we know it's not. We we have evidence of this. It, you know, and the thing of it is, is that there have been studies about socialistic societies, um, communes where there are there are no leaders and everyone is equal. And in small and and studies have shown that in small groupings, that kind of thing works. We'll, you know, we'll call it anarchy. Um, there's, there have been small communes that have been, sh- you know, in over hundreds and hundreds of years, small pockets of society with very few people in them where there was no uh, single elected strongman or leader. But in large, great societies, you know, with, with, you know, with complex things going on, it doesn't work at all. And, and I don't know if it hardly warrants a debate, I guess was the point that I was trying to make, is even if he's not saying, I am an anarchist and let's have anarchy, he is in fact saying, let's have a debate about this. Let's give it some thought. And, and again, I go back to why? Why does this merit serious thought when it's such an asinine concept in practicality? I don't let anyone jump in here and answer that question. Well, there's a couple of ways to approach that one. One is that if you're attempting to start a debate, a bit of civil discourse, a bit of discussion, you have to start somewhere. And in reality, the antithesis of whatever is not working at the time, however extreme that may be, is not the worst place in the world to start from. And when you consider that Moore wrote this in the early 80s, as a response to Thatcherism in the United Kingdom, and I'm not British, but uh, that was a very interesting bit of time for that culture, to the best of my knowledge, for that country. Going to the other extreme is not uh, just as a means of offering a counter-argument, as a means of offering contrast, as a means of saying, okay, you say this is right, I say this is right, support your case, please is not the most ludicrous thing in the world in terms of simply getting civil discourse going. If we're actually implementing a rule structure, no, that's not really how that works. But if you just need to get people talking because you think change is necessary, taking the exact opposite stance of the commonality point of view isn't the worst thing in the world. One of the things that I noticed, uh, you know, as I was, I'm back, I'm back, and I'm ringing a bell. Um, so, V for Vendetta, you guys were talking about the difference between what Alan Moore is rep, or excuse me, what V is representing versus what the government is representing, and and you know, 
I, I think that this story, and I apologize if I am repeating what you guys may have already said. I just got back in here. I heard a little bit, but it's two extremes, uh, and they come together in, in this, this crazy form in this book where I don't think these intentions – then again, it may be, and maybe he loves anarchy enough to where he's going to bring everything down. But I think his intention is to bring everything down and then build back up from that. And you'll notice there's a couple references in the books, or in the book, that where he talks about things have to be destroyed in order for us to build again and build anew. Uh, so the purpose of anarchy in this particular book, I think, is not a long-term solution in any way. It's a very, it's a very temporary thing that has to happen in order to get people to open up their eyes and rebuild from the rubble something better. How's that sound? I mean, that's fine. And I think in terms <laughs> of the story, don't get me wrong. I don't, I don't like, I don't dislike the story. I like it a lot. I sure. Just, I think where I got hung up on was the idea of you have an author who aches to, to share a point of view and that point of view is interesting from a college lecturer level as, you know, that, that, that was sort of my answer to what Rob said, but I wanted to let Jesse get back in on the discussion. I think if you're in a, in a classroom environment and you're just, let's talk about ideas from the dumbest to the smartest. Sure. There's a debate to be had, but I think, if you're trying to say something about the greater society at large and say, you know, and look, there, there's a degree of paranoia in this book. Um, and, and I think in, in the mind of more, there's definitely paranoia. Um, in, the, in the time that, I mean, we've seen it in the Watchmen, we, we not necessarily the extraordinary gentlemen, but we definitely see it in V for Vendetta that he has an idea of what was going on at that time and where things were going. And it was an idea shared by many I don't know how many of you guys have read 1984, but the idea that just a couple of times, you know, <laughs> you know, the idea that we've had two world wars, we've had two atomic bombs dropped, we are in the nuclear age, there's a cold, uh, we have come through a cold war, you know, th- these were these were raw, fresh ideas that were poking people's nerves and causing a lot of paranoia. So I get that, and if you were any kind of a thinking individual in the Reagan slash Thatcher era 80s, yeah, you might have thought the world was going to come to an end or that we were drifting towards fascism. And so I don't fault Moore's point of view for that reason. But in 2016, looking back in retrospect, um, I'm finding some of the themes here a smidge hollow. Not tremendously, and when we talk about the film, I think it actually becomes Really more relevant, but I, I think the idea of of the idea of we need to consider anarchy in the face of rising fascism uh, now comes to me as, as you know tinfoil hatish. Um, mm. I say it's not a nice story, but I'm having a lot of trouble with, with the subtext. Personally. Okay. Okay. All right. I think that's I mean I think it's a fair view and that's what the point of this book is the point of this particular work is to make you think okay is this something that's okay to do or is this something that's not okay to do cuz on the face oh my gosh it looks horrible 
Imagine being a person sitting there and you're in England and all of a sudden, you know, one of the biggest monuments to government just absolutely explodes. Uh, I'd be horrified and I would be scared, but my eyes would be open. Uh, So, and I hate, one of the things that we can ask at the end of this, after we talk the movie, but it, one of the things and one of the biggest criticisms about this is, glorifying terrorism uh is this is v actually right or wrong and what's good about the book versus the movie is i think more did a and this is something i i definitely did the research on but i think his purpose was to kind of leave that ambiguous um leave it up to the reader which is one of the great one of the great things that anybody can do when they write a story or write a comic, leave it up to the reader to make their decisions on whether this person is right or wrong. So Mark, when you read this book, it's perfectly a great valid response for you to sit there and say, "Uh, you know, I don't think so. When somebody else on this podcast might look at it and say, that's the fucking answer right there. That's the answer. Um, so it's it's a great way of Alan Moore reaching whoever the reader is, in my opinion. Uh, now, uh, if anybody has anything else they'd like to add, feel free. If not, we'll gladly move on to movie time with Mark Radulich. Anybody? Going once, going twice. Um, I said I'd mentioned some of my favorite uh, parts of the book. That yes. Uh, part. And in in doing so, I wanted to mention parts of the book that were not uh, part that were not in the movie that I, I in some cases I really wish were. Um, I can make this fairly quick. Basically, um, first of all, uh, the um, and now I'm going back and looking at uh, you know who uh, I think it was uh, with Sutler who is the you know. The high chancellor. Uh, his name is Susan in the book. Fine. <laughs> see, that's that's what happens when you see, when you see the movie. You Last watch the movie. movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, but basically, uh, he has uh, basically the supercomputer that uh, called uh, Fate. That um, kind of a glorified plot device, but there's a great reveal that. Um, the reason why V has been able to kind of infiltrate every all of his dealings and and kind of work his campaign is basically that he had he was able to reverse engineer his you know the computer and has a version of his own that he's been using to sort of uh, you know infiltrate the you know this this sort of regime from from the inside out. Um, that was a great reveal. Yeah, um, you know. The voice of fate. I just want to piggyback on that real quick. Uh, a lot of the the past few episodes, or the two episodes that we've done so far, I've made a a statement about how Alan Moore is treats media um, in in these books and its effect or impact on the public. Uh, the voice of fate, which is the guy who supposedly you know it reads. Uh, it, tells everybody the information from this computer or whatever, interprets it so everybody can hear it. I mean, imagine somebody that you had to listen to on the public, on NPR, that was called the voice of fate, okay? This is fate of all things. We, we all look at fate as a, you know, this etheric substance that may or may not have a, uh, the 
you know what what's going to happen to us the next day. This is something that's either written in stone uh, or, or or something like that. And it's such an interesting thing to see him take that and apply that to the public and see how the public because most of the public and I think this is in the book. He specifically says maybe it's in the movie I can't remember, but people will believe easily what's on TV. Uh, you know I don't know how many times that I've changed the channel when I see you know, the president come to the podium. But if in the, instead of the president coming to the podium, they instead decided to, impl- uh, to disseminate that message throughout programs on TV that, m- like, millions of people watch. I, I know this is nothing revelatory to many people who are pretty smart and understand how media works, but you see that in Alan Moore's work a lot, specifically in this particular book. This is probably one of the loudest that I heard the whole media uh, impact on people message that I've seen. And I don't think it's, he's really overt about it. But anyway, okay, I'm sorry. Benjamin, go ahead. Finish what you were going to say. No, it's uh, worth, worth mentioning. Um, next thing that was not in the movie that I wish was from the book, about a third of the way into the book, The Vicious Cabaret... Oh, that would have been awesome. Because Hugo Weaving could have sung the crap out of that. It is on YouTube. Somebody has actually performed it, recorded it, and sung it. I it, it, I encourage anybody who loved that song. It is, it is an actual piece of music that Alan Moore wrote and composed for piano that uh, somebody has deigned to uh, to perform. And uh, it may still be on YouTube. I hope it is. I'll probably go back and check it out later on. Um, it basically it, uh, it says a lot without you know in in a very short amount of time about what's going on in the story up to that point. Um, just a tremendous, and it it comes kind of out of nowhere, but it, in kind of the best way. Um, but yeah, uh, try to find the YouTube video if it's still out there. If not, then uh, you know it's fairly easy enough to to remind. Alan Moore's actually got a pretty good uh, ear for music. He, uh, if you've uh, if you've read the Killing Joke, the the really twisted song that, that the Joker sings in there is uh, is another example. Um, <laughs> uh, next thing. Um, there's there's a point in here, and this is where um, V for Vendetta. If you are of a mind to look at it in a certain way, there's a lot of horror elements in V for Vendetta. Just in uh, in a couple of fundamental ways, in in the way that uh, you know a person who uh, you know commits murder with a mask completely covering his face and concealing any kind of facial expression is inherently terrifying, and you know. And uh, Robert, you're you're a horror guy like me. Uh, you know, uh, you guys, I, I, I'm sure, familiar to, with with horror tropes in, in varying degrees. But that's a bit, you know, that's that's pretty horrifying, and and that's utilized in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways in this in this book, um, where you've got just the blank, you know, dead-eyed guy fox mask, and you. You have an idea of what kind of facial expression may be under it at any given time, but you're still not quite sure, and that's a little bit unnerving. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's also an element of um, there's another scene where the uh, the investigators are putting together all of the evidence. Like there's a, uh, a lot of these people are have been killed, and they're kind of like putting the pieces together, and they come up with these couple of different scenarios as to why V is doing this, um, and they say, you know, the first scenario is pretty obvious and it's pretty common and it's a little bit less unnerving, and that's just that he's insane, he's trying to kill all of these people, and he's committing, you know, these acts of vengeance, and that means he's done, and he'll stop, and there's no reason for him to continue. The second scenario is much more disturbing, and that is... What if he's just kind of clearing the decks? Uh, what if he's getting rid of everybody who may have known him in his previous life and he is getting ready to do something even bigger, which we find out very quickly is exactly what is happening. Yeah. I love that part, and I wish that was in the movie. The last part, and we mentioned it, um, uh, Robert mentioned it also, um, is at the very end, Evie uh, putting on a costume and becoming V. Um, what we got, you know, we got the sort of abstract, you know, everybody, uh, takes off the mask and and you see everybody underneath the mask and all, including characters that we know have passed away. So we know it's a little bit of artistic license at the end of the movie. Um, that's, I guess that's an okay substitute for what we got. Um, I still kind of love the idea that, um, I love this execution of the idea that V is everybody and everybody is V and anybody can be V. Yeah, uh, and it's just such a perfect way for the story to end. And you see, you know, once once Evie comes to the realization of what she has to do, um, you know, right before he dies, he she tells him, or he he tells her uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, you must know what lies underneath this mask, but you can never know my face. Man. Yes, yes, yes. And and it takes her a minute to understand what he means by that, but then she gets it. It's like, you know, you know, any this is what he means and this is what I have to do. And you see her with the, you know, with the guy fox mask smile as that chapter ends and you know immediately at that point, oh, this is what's going to happen. Mhm. The you, last thing. No, go ahead, last man. Last thing. Um my favorite part of this story, my favorite single scene uh, in this in this story, and it's pretty obvious. And I hope it's it's at least one other person's favorite scene in this. It's and it's when she when after the after the torture after the torture that's been visited upon Evie, and she uh, is ready to die, and she's got no more uh, illusions left in her, and uh, the uh, her. Her torturer, her you know, jailer, basically says, "You're free. You've got nothing. There's nothing we can threaten you with." Something to that effect. And the revelation and the single page where she emerges and it's the shadow gallery. Uh huh. That's what I was talking about. That is the one of the very few times that I have read anything that actually got a physical response from me. Um, that's what kind of put this book over the top for me. That was just phenomenal for me. And it's just, it's a powerful message. I mean, when you when you look at it, because at first, I, I, my reaction to her being somewhat tortured or whatever, if you want to if you want to call it that, it 
again, it's him. It's V looking at somebody and saying, you are, you, you need to be liberated and you need to have no fear. And he takes her through this just absolute horrible. I mean, she gets her head shaved. She's, she's put in jail. She's starved. I mean, she comes out of there. She's like, I mean, it, it's, uh, (laughs) she weighs like 90 pounds. Um, so she's been through a lot. And then, you know, she finds out it's actually V. Of course, your first instinct would be anger, but that is one of the more um, potent parts of this book is the fact that as angry as she is, she ends up understanding his ideals and what he did in order to, uh, in order to show her and free her from the fear of death, the fear of those who could potentially harm her. Um, it, Dude, it's with, I, I, it's without a shadow of a doubt the best part of the book, in my opinion. Um, anything else you want to add there, Benjamin? Um, like I said, just uh, if anybody has you know has any desire to like reread this book, reread this book from the point of view that it's a horror story, and you might get a little, you <laughs> might get some a little something different out of it because there there are some parts where like. You know, there's a scene in the where he gets uh, he gets caught outside of you know this lady's apartment, and and the guy's about to he's got him point blank. He pulls the trigger, and the gun is either empty or misfires. It's empty. Uh, them, that's the same gun he had been threatening his wife with earlier, with the rather stereotypical, oh, yeah, the frequently utilized and you know abusive husband relate thing of you know i've got a he's got the gun puts it to her head pulls the trigger says bang it wasn't loaded this time and Damn then he runs out and, and then he runs out after v without actually loading the gun <laughs> this is why i needed to read this again but yeah the, basically the gun you know the gun is empty and you don't all you see is the mask you don't see anything there's not there's not a word on the page there's not a sound effect on the page but it's the scene of V just lunging at him and and obviously repeatedly stabbing him to death. You don't see any of that. All you see is him, like V, like kind of leaning over him and him screaming, and it's silent, and that's mm-hmm. creepy as hell. It is. And, mm-hmm. and there's there's a lot of scenes like that if you look at it from that kind of point of view. Um, very interesting. I've never thought of that. I mean, I, you know, I was looking at the political ideals and all that, but reading it from a horror standpoint, that definitely puts a different spin on things. Well, all right. Mark Radlich, sir, you know, I'm not even going to give you much of an introduction. I'm just going to say, take us to the movie, sir. What do you got to say? All right. Um, just a real quick, there are some, as Ben has pointed out, there are some changes in the movie from the book uh, and it made poor Alan more sad. I just want to go over them really it was, it was rubbish. He frowned the whole time he was casting his check. <laughs> so, I don't think um, he cashed a check on this one. No, he didn't. Really? He refused it. Yeah. Oh, wow. Robin, I, I didn't know that. that. And I said, what, you know, why, why, why is he always bitching about the way his movies are done? Did he not have a pro in this? And the impression I got talking to Winfrey earlier was basically he don't know none of this stuff. And uh, DC did, and DC yeah. uh, said to Hollywood, hey, here's some Alan Moore stuff that might make some good movies. I've at it. And Moore said, what are you doing with my books? And um, <laughs> that, there we have it. Um, 
<laughs> Alan Mormont, the celebration of a man fucked by his former publisher. Uh, uh, yeah, kind of. really is. <laughs> All right, so V for Vendetta. Um, Wait, some, that's not the a, real subtitle of this month. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it kind of explains of his obsession with rape, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was a foreshadowing. I, I might be wrong in my assumptions, and that might be more on the money. Um, they wrote these before he got fucked. Uh, <laughs> all right, so here we go. Uh, quick, quick run through of the movie. Um, again, some of this is exactly out of the book. Some of it's a bit, bit of a change. But uh, we have Evie, who is played by Natalie Portman, who is not a prostitute, but instead going to meet her boss. Uh, uh, after curfew, she gets caught by the finger men. They're gonna, they, they leave the rape out of it. They're just gonna kill her. Uh, no, no, they, no, they're actually more no, no. into the rape in that scene than they are in the murder. They're actually, they're they're specifically they, in the book. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry, the one guy took his pants down. Okay. It, it, it oh, no, she's got, yeah, bit. there's, there's no illusions there. There's three of them, and, uh, yeah, that's gonna okay. be a bad night for Natalie Portman. The, right. Yeah, they were pretty straightforward with it. Sorry, my, my mistake. So she's about to get raped and killed. V shows up and then kills everybody. Uh, takes um, now in, instead of the, style. <laughs> instead of what uh. happens in the book, they separate briefly. There's a there's a whole thing where uh, she goes to her job, which is the Jordan Center, and she works for a guy who has like, who has like a comedic talk show. Um, you know, the British version of Johnny Carson, from what I was able to gather. Yeah, Stephen um, Fry is so much better than Johnny Carson. Oh, for God's sake. Um, so anyway, uh, the, the cops are out looking for her. He shows up. Uh, one of them has him dead to right. She ends up uh, taking him out, and she gets clocked on the head with a gun. Uh, v takes her back to the Shadow Gallery. Um, I'm, I'm ripping, ripping through this really quick. Uh, he says, you got to stay here for a year until next November 5th when, you know, when the ship goes down and you better be ready. Oh, good one. For um, thank you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she, she tricks him into letting her help him with one of his murders, uh, which is the priest. She dresses up as just a lovely little girl. Um, and she tries to tell the priest, hey, you're about to be murdered. And he says, that's fine, but I'd still like to rape you. And, uh, B comes in, kills him. Um, she makes a run for it. Uh, she ends up uh, going going to the boss's house where he shows her uh, his etching. No, he shows her um, his gallery of forbidden stuff, which is a Quran. Uh, there's explicit photos. There's a picture of the fascist leader um, looking like Mark Thatcher. All kinds of neat stuff. And he tells her, okay, stop on top, on top of that. Shortly thereafter, he decides he's going to go off script and do a show where they make fun of Fearless Leader, uh, which gets him uh, beaten and killed. Um, she tries to narrowly escape, but is kidnapped. She is tortured. She is asked to give information on B, uh, which she does not. And finally, after a period of time and receiving letters from a uh, former captive, a captive who was, uh, she was in prison because she was a lesbian, uh, an actress and all, and all that. Uh, she tells her captors, I, I, I would rather die than give this man up. At which point, uh, Peter Griffin 
throws a box of lottery tickets on the floor and says, these are the real tickets. I had to know if you were all serious. No. Um, what happens is... <laughs> He's watching a different movie. I just, I just watched that the other day. <laughs> that's, I'm sorry. That's what that scene came I, As soon as I saw that, that's the first thing I thought of. Um, no, he, he's like, I was trying to get you over your fear, and now you are fearless. Okay, so he leaves him again. Um, uh, be, meanwhile, while all this is happening, he's being hunted by Finch, and along the way, Finch is starting to realize, hey, wait a minute, things are not as they seem. He uncovers the great mystery of who uh, V once was. We get this whole backstory about uh, him being in a, in a uh, concentration camp where they were doing human experimentation of biological weapons. They, he finds out the secret of St. Uh, Mary's uh, pandemic. Um, and he is along the way somewhat convinced that maybe things need to change. Um, there's another character, uh, Curry, who is also convinced by V that if they give up Fearless Leader, then he shall step up and everything will be fine. Creedy. So, anyway, moving on. Creedy? Uh, Creedy? Yeah, sorry. Creedy. So um, everything proceeds to this final uh, final end game where he's going to blow up Parliament. Uh, there's a whole action sequence where uh, they, he does kill Phyllis Leader, and uh, they, they shoot Phyllis Leader in the head. He's there. Um, then they go, then they have a confrontation with V, where they all shoot V, V supernaturally, um, manages yeah, to body armor. I know you're getting there, <laughs> um, but it's made to look supernatural initially. Uh, he gets up from a hail of bullets, go, uh, ends up choking Creedy, and he is revealed he's wearing body armor. Thank you, Winfrey. Um, so now he's you know mortally wounded. He, uh, he goes back to Natalie Portman's character. Uh, she puts him on the train, sends the train heading towards Parliament. Um, Parliament, uh, all the people with the V-masks that they've gotten in the mail show up to watch this thing. They take it off. Parliament blows up. Fireworks. Um, and in the alternate ending, Winfrey, I swear to God, if you interrupt me, fucking, you're right out of here. In the alternate ending, which I want to talk about, uh, V and Natalie Portman actually move to the countryside, uh, have children, one of them born with a beauty mark. Right. Mark, I'm going to disconnect you because this is a terrible idea. <laughs> Mute that man! Who then grows up to become the new fascist leader in what is meant to be a franchise, V for Vendetta 2, more vendettas. Oh, jeez. Um, Really you need to be oh, very, very <laughs> grateful right about now, Mark, that you live so far away from me. Because if I was within reasonable like, driving distance. I like the storyline, but I like my title better. <laughs> my Damn it. Vendetta now, um, <laughs> so, no, no, but seriously, folks, uh, so that we can actually have a discussion about this. She sends V off in the train. Uh, the train hits Parliament. Parliament blows up. There's fireworks. Uh, last words exchanged between Natalie Portman and, and uh, Finch are I Spoticus, so I'm Spoticus, and World Credit. So, um, <laughs> one of the big complaints, first of all, let's just go, just go around real quick. Yes, no, did you like the movie? Did you not like the movie? Um, ben, what, what were your 50 words or less thoughts on the movie? Uh, I liked it. Uh, the two main actors that they got saved it from being 
probably more mediocre than it could have been. That's that's my biggest uh, takeaway. Yeah, okay. Uh Ronnie. I liked it. Um it, I I I'm a sucker for for a little more action. I felt like it had a little more action than the I don't know. Um than the book at some points, but uh but it I a lot of people may I mean some people may disagree with me. I like um they to me they humanize V a little more in this than in the book than more did in the book, so I, I, I kinda dug on that. Um to a certain point. So, um I thought the actors just you know just like you said, I think the actors um saved it from being um saved it from being a, you know mediocre, you know, kind of a um a dull movie. Jesse? I I did enjoy the movie. Yes. Uh I'm going to save I'm going to let Robert Winfrey handle Hugo Weaving's uh you know portrayal of V and and how well that was done. Uh, uh Natalie Portman did a fine job. Uh as for the rest of the actors other than Mr. Fry, I, I didn't recognize, and they did. I think they did okay. I, I think they How were. How do you not recognize that, Adam Hurt? Oh, that's right, Adam Hurt, the War Doctor. My bad. I, I should have No, better. no, the supreme irony, the supreme irony of Adam Hurt as Supreme Chancellor John. Adam Sutler. John what? Hurt. John, John Hurt. Hurt. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, John and Williams. I get them confused sometimes, uh, but no, the supreme irony of John Hurt being Adam Chancellor is in the. To this date, definitive and, to the best of my knowledge, only true one-to-one adaptation of Orson Welles' 1984 stars yes. John Hurt as the protagonist. And in this movie, he is almost literally Big Brother. The exact opposite. <laughs> uh, yeah, good point, Winfrey. Good point. Uh, I did. I, right. And as Go ahead. Oh, okay, I thought you were done. I wanted to get Winfrey. Started. I am now. Winfrey, your uh, your thoughts on the movie, and um, you can throw in there the next ten words on Hugo Weaving's portrayal of V. I enjoyed the movie. I actually regret not seeing it in theaters when it came out. I was uh, too put off by cause the marketing for this thing. Was those of you who were uh, might may remember this, or who you know either were too young, or I imagine there's a subset of our audience that wasn't even born at the time this thing was released in theaters. Bite your tongue. <laughs> just an acknowledgement that some of us are old and there's some probably young viewers the marketing of this movie was heavily uh, I remember the key marketing point being that this was done by the Wachowski brothers who were famous for the Matrix and I this is going to sound really odd considering I defended the entire trilogy for two and a half hours with Mark Radlich on a podcast How? I wasn't that fond of the first Matrix movie when it came out just generally wasn't so their name was not a point in the movie's favor for me when it came to the marketing i wound up seeing it after the fact and just regretted not seeing it in theaters for no other reason than because i did see a couple of other movies in the big cineplex at the same time and it didn't matter where you were in that building you knew when parliament blew up and i kind of wish that i'd been able to see that uh, as for Hugo Weaving, yeah, tremendous. I mean, I've talked about this frequently with 
Sean Comer and Pat Mullen and a few other, I think uh, Benjamin and I may have had this conversation as well. The importance of actors being able to do more, do stuff with more than just their face, acting with your body, acting with your body language, the presence that you can have, you know, things beyond what you, what is over your face. And so some very talented actors have been absolutely hamstrung by facial prosthetics uh, James Marsden is Cyclops, so the writing didn't help him at all, if you want a, a brief example of that. And here Hugo Weaving is covered head to toe for the majority of this movie and gives the best performance in the film. Uh, this, was, this was originally James Purfoy, who's a very good actor in his own right. Uh, he just had issues with wearing a mask the whole time, elements of the costume he just wasn't comfortable with. They got Weaving. Uh, much as I like Purfoy, they absolutely traded up. Yep. Uh, Weaving mm. was tremendous. You couldn't have gotten a better guy for this role. In uh, real, real briefly, uh, this might aggravate some people. I maintain this is actually the best work of Stephen Fry's career, and I hold his career in relatively high esteem. All right. I don't want to – normally we would discuss a little bit more of the craft, but of the film, not the craft of the movie. Um, the craft of the film, but yes. I actually want to discuss a little bit more um, some of the themes discussed in in the movie. Um, I want to just kick around a few ideas. Um, you know, more uh, more talks about how this was uh, a Bush. The, the Wachowskis made it a Bush era parable sort of mirroring the paranoia in present day 2004, 2005, 2006. The movie comes out in 2006, but, you know, I'm sure that they spent some time shooting the damn thing. So, uh, so you know, by this point, and I don't want to go off on a whole political thing, but just to give people an idea, we're, you know, we're in the middle of a war in Iraq, you know, and this is post-Mission Accomplished. Um, I'm not giving an opinion. It just, it happened. The man stood there with a banner um, there's, I don't know if Abu Ghraib, um, it, it, I think it, I think by that point that had come out. There's a, there's a lot of problems in the, in 2006 with the Bush era presidency. And this is not a referendum on the presidency. I don't necessarily want to talk about that, but I want to know from your guys' opinion, do you think the movie, um, do you think that the fact that this did hold up of a mirror to what was going on in the Bush presidency. Uh, did that make the movie stronger for you? Did that not have really an effect one way or the other? Um, and did you like the fact that, that that's the direction that they went in? Uh, because I did. I'll, I'll, I'll kick off this discussion. It doesn't matter what my opinion of George Bush was or is um, or what my opinion of the war was or anything else. I'm fascinated by the idea that people were very frightened of that administration, that they thought, you know, with, with um, the Patriot Act and the, and the, law, and the um, unlawful wiretapping and the grave and the war, that it mirrored in a lot of ways a lot of the paranoia and a lot of the fear that was going on in the 80s. Um, so in a, in a way, I like the fact that they made the for Vendetta, the movie, a, a very contemporary. I think if they had stuck with fears of Thatcherism present in the book, 
it wouldn't have worked as well. That's just my opinion. I think the film, to this day, and going generations even further, is a is very uh, is something that people should should watch. I think it's, it's, I think it's a very effective storytelling for society. Um, and that and that goes without showing you any of my political feelings. I think it's an interesting story and there were interesting ideas being bandied about um, and that the fear of what was happening was very present in this. What are some of your guys' thoughts? Um, I'm going to go in reverse order this time. Please do keep in mind that we have 20 minutes of live time left and then who knows how much of one of, of recording time. Could be, 90, could, could be 59 minutes, could be 59 seconds. I don't know what it is. So, so be, say what you have to say, but be mindful of the clock. Go ahead. I think it's a minor miracle that this movie aged as well as it did. Uh, I rewatched it today after I finished reading the book because I like reading. And as Mark kind of pointed out, I have very little other constraints on my time. You don't have kids. Uh, among other things. Yeah, no, it's the the story itself, while elements of what it talks about are relatively dated, it maintains, you know, the book is still very good, in large part because I have a bit of understanding of the historical perspective. So e- even, you know, the fact that I never had to live through Thatcherism as an Englishman, or a lot of Thatcherism in general, given that I was born in 1985... There's there's still a fair amount of understanding that goes into it. With the movie, when I rewatched it, not just today, but uh, a few months ago, just because I wanted to watch it again, I was one of the things I really wanted to look at was is the movie dated because the Wachowskis and Joe McTiernan uh, have a very particular uh, set of. You know, agendas they would like to foist on us via their films. And to my, to a bit of my surprise, it didn't. Uh, it is mm-hmm. not dated. The the underlying themes of you know, governmental oppression are not at all bound by party lines. And I, I again, we're not going. I don't think we want to get too political here. But as a general rule, you know, a gov whatever your alignment happens to be on the theoretical left-right political spectrum, the extreme end of either side tends to end in fundamentally fascism because the only way communism functions is if the government's got a gun to your head, and fascism operates with a gun to your head because that's how fascism operates. So it's, it's really not about you know the Bush administration as such. It's much more about you know governmental overreach, governmental oppression. And that come and you know, that comes from, to use political parlance, either side of the aisle. And the movie manages to avoid falling into being too topical to the exclusion of rewatchability. I would agree with that. Just as an aside any of you guys are into the Freakonomics podcast or have never heard of it before, they did one not that long ago. It's still on my playlist. Um, has the U.S. presidency become a dictator? And it was a fascinating listen. I listened to it today. It really goes along with what we're talking about here. I don't want to go into too many 
but it does deal with the idea of presidents from Washington till now uh, overreaching and adding to the presidential power. Which so is, it's eight hours on Andrew Jackson and FDR. Oh, shut up. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, over over the years, presidents have acquired more power uh, for themselves, and you know, it's a precedent that was set all the way, you know, back to the beginning, because the president, the presidential powers in the Constitution are not necessarily, you know, explicitly explained. Uh, ben, your thoughts on the movie vis-a-vis um, relative to our time? Okay, I talked. I talked a little bit about this with Jesse. I'm glad uh, you guys, a few of you guys, went ahead of me on this because you said a lot of things that uh, I probably would have said um, that I really rather have not gotten into too much detail in. Um, I have neither the inclination or the energy right this minute to get too deep into political talk anyway. Um, But I'll say in its original form, in in the original book, uh, V for Vendetta was kind of at its heart intended to be a cautionary tale uh, based on the political climate that Alan Moore had seen uh, up to that point and his interpretation and his and his, uh, his sort of working a, ca- a cautionary tale around that and the, the Wachowskis basically took that idea that concept and worked the same story around the same concept, but a, in you know in a different decade, and I think they succeeded in the storytelling aspect of it. I think they succeeded um, since it's not exactly the same you know political situation that you know you're basing the satire around. Some things line up differently. Uh, but I think it works well enough to where the story did not suffer. I don't think it 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 sort of changed, I guess, the trajectory of what what Alan Moore was uh, going for, um, which you kind of expect just because of what it's based around. Um, but I don't think it hurt what the core of a lot of the characters were about. I don't think it hurt a lot of the core of what uh, what the story was trying to say. And I think both versions, both that, you know, the, the book and the adaptation of the book uh, came to pretty close to the same conclusion. Um, which, like Robert said, it's kind of a minor miracle considering what they changed, how they changed it, and you know, how they ended up circling back to Know, from point A to as close to point B as you might expect it to to have been able to come to. Uh, Ronnie? Uh, at my core, I absolutely abhor politics. I, I can't stand any of it, to be honest with you. Um, but with that said, I I don't I didn't really correlate that with uh, the movie with. Uh, 
the their thoughts on the Bush administration or anything like that. Mainly, probably because I'll be honest, I, I block a lot of that stuff out. Um, I know that sounds completely ignorant on my part, but it's not that I'm not informed or don't read or or don't watch the news or anything like that. But when I watch a movie, I kind of I, I don't I don't look at the the author or, or not the author, but the writer or the director's personal political agenda. I set that aside, but uh, I don't think it harmed the original story in any way uh, with what they did with it. It actually, you know, made it a little more relevant, I guess you could say. Um, but uh, with that said, I, I, I think it, uh, I think they did an excellent job with it as far as that goes. But I don't, I didn't correlate that with with the 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 times that that I grew up in. You know, the I actually, I, I can remember the most of the Bush, I mean, the uh, Reagan administration as well, when, you know, all the way up through. But um, uh, it, it's just one of those things where I know this sounds stupid, but when I watch a movie, I watch it to be entertained. I don't correlate it with what's going on around me. But you can, but I don't most of the time. Sure. Movies, movies are escapism. That's a, that's a valid argument. Uh, Jesse, and yeah. then I want to talk about one specific change from the from the book to the movie that I think we all hate, and it needs to, and it needs to be discussed just to vent those feelings. So go ahead, Jess. I'm not again, Jesse. <laughs> God damn it! While we're waiting for while we're waiting for Jesse, Skype, and Bog Dog Radio to finally get along. Um, let me go ahead and uh, just, I'll move ahead and if we ever get Jesse back, I'll double back. It'll be a little awkward, but that's fine. Awkward. Since it's, it's, boy, that's rattling in, Cro- in Croatian. Um, all right. Uh, I want to talk about one of the changes in the book. Uh, we, we talked about this offline and it's repeating. So I'm watching this movie, and I'll just give you my take on it. I'm watching the movie, and I'm really into it, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm getting a lot of different things, a lot of stuff I talked about, you know, um, the contemporariness of the time, uh, the detective story, them trying to piece the thing together, this revenge tale. It's a, it's, a, it's a very layered, complex story. I'm really enjoying it. And then V says something along the lines to Evie, who is Natalie, who was played by Natalie Portman, <laughs> I've fallen in love with you. And I had one of those moments where I just wanted to throw everything off my desk and turn the movie on. I, I could not stand it. It, it is, it, I don't know if it's a failure of direction, a failure of writing, but it, it came across to me like studio notes. You know, it, it just, like, like executive, like they, they, got a, they got this, they got daily, they looked at the footage and went, why does this not have a love story? Can we get a love story going here? You know, there was a little bit of a love story in the book. It's kind of a father-daughter thing. Oh, fuck that. You know, we need, this is America, goddammit, and we need to have a love story. Can we have, can we change the ending? Can we have them? Can we have it have a happy ending? No, sir. That really takes the whole tone and the whole thing. All right, but just make them fall in love. Can we do that? Ugh. It took me right out of the movie. I felt it was, it was, a, it was a failure of, of, uh, of movie itself, uh, failure of directing, um, failure of the script, and I feel like it, 
completely serviced the character at all. I just, it, I almost didn't make it to the end. There was only 13 minutes left. But I almost didn't make it to the end of the movie. And it, it passed over quickly enough that I got over it, you know, just the same. But oh my God, was that hard. It's the worst part of the movie. And we're talking about movie that hi, 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 hi. Holy shit, he just said he loved her. And we're back again. Um, it, it really derails the movie scene. Almost at the point of unwatchability. And maybe I'm being a bit hyperbolic. Um, you guys have a minute to think about that while we have Jesse who's back. Hello. Or is he? Oh, good. <laughs> Jesse, <laughs> well, everybody coming up with, is coming up with rational explanations for why they went this way and they're going to tell me all about it. You tell me your thoughts on the previous topic. Oh, yes. Um... I was as I was as I was saying. By the way, two years, Blog Talk Radio. Nothing's changed. By the way, um, just to <laughs> let everybody know. <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm right there with Ronnie, one of the least political guys you'll probably know. Watch the movie. I certainly didn't get any overtone of um, you know the, the whatever political uh, you know political power or political party was in power at that point in time. What I did get watching the movie was you know how interesting how interestingly touchy the subject of terrorism would have been five years outside of 9-11 that was one of the things that really struck me was like man just imagine sitting there watching this happen and you know you're five years outside of one of the worst terrorist attacks in, in our nation's history and you have to root for this guy uh, mm-hmm. Quite a difficult situation to be put in. You know, now we're 15 years out. Our, obviously, we've uh, we've learned as we've come uh, a little bit further forward. Doesn't make the situation that less shocking. It's just that you know it's it's become a part of our history and a part of our culture so much that watching it, you know, 10 years after it's been released may not hold that much of a uh, hold that much of a, now I don't want to say shock value, but may not hold that, may not touch your heartstrings as much as it may have back then. So, but as for political, politically wise, and I, I was not watching this movie. I watched this movie Saturday. This is, I think it was the second time I watched it, and I was certainly not, you know, other than just watching the oppressive government in in action. That is the main thing I got from the story. So I, I don't believe they really you know, hammered down that fact. And Mark, you probably recognize stuff like that a, a little bit easier than I would because I, well, you know, one of the first podcasts on this network, I, I believe was a, a politically, a political podcast could be wrong on that, but please. Um, You're right. Okay. That's so, right. so, you know, I mean, you can see that stuff easy and I don't, did it feel to you that it was that this was, uh, that politically charged and that representative of what was going on at the time? Did you uh, say that it was? You know how many movies I've seen with fascist governments and somebody, you know, whose aim is to take them down through, through killing people and blowing up buildings? This is this was not an original concept. Mm-hmm. Um, it was nicely done, and I enjoyed it. There are interesting elements of it that I have not seen in those kinds of movies. But overall, you have you have a, you have a wronged and angry man who looks around at the world and says something is not right here, and I and I am compelled for whatever the reasons are in this case revenge to do something about it. And you know, and on the other side of this, you've got you know you've got this Orwellian nightmare. Um, 
And if you don't think that 1984 got brought up constantly during the Bush administration, then you were not listening. Okay. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so I mean, for, so for me, I thought that I, I, I didn't think about it until I, until after the movie was over, um, as far as getting into that part of it and sort of, you know, reading the background of the movie and everything. I'm like, okay, oh, I see all that now. It makes sense. As I was just yeah. watching the movie, was, you know, man takes down fascist government, film at 11. Yeah. Um, very well done. Uh, okay, so so back to V and I love you. Am I, am I wrong? <laughs> am I wrong, guys? Do I, do I do I just not do I do I just not have a heart, or, or am I on the right page? Ben, talk to me. Show me, show me what's going on. Um, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> personally, for me, um. Up to that point, I mean, hints were dropped, uh, illusions were made more so than in the book. In the book, like you said, it was a much more, you know, sort of father-daughter dynamic between the two main characters to the point where, like I said, early on in the book, uh, Evie is at one point convinced that V is her father, which, mm-hmm. he, flatly de- which he flatly denies. Um and she's, you know, she comes to the, you know, she 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 sort of accepts that by the by the time the story's over. Um, yeah, and and all I'll say, and like you said, you mentioned like studio notes, and that's kind of what it felt like to me. It felt like it was, uh, you know, every once in a while, you know, some some dummy from Warner Brothers uh, felt the need to justify his own existence and pipe in and say. You know, there's not enough not enough romance in this movie. Uh, do something about that. Um, so, but the the thing is, you could t- you could kind of tell it was done so half acidly and so uh, half heartedly, and it was so tacked on that. I didn't, me personally, like, it, it didn't even have a chance for me to, to hate it. Uh, it's such a non-factor in the entire movie that it's just so easily forgettable for me. And it doesn't, in that way, it doesn't ruin the movie for me at all. It doesn't do anything in the movie at all because there's not enough weight given to it for it to do anything. I don't know. It's like, uh, I'm reminded of Second Family Guy reference of the night, everyone. Um, I'm reminded <laughs> of a bit in Family Guy where... Like in the you middle like of a mud pit. <laughs> Third reference. Um, the one that I'm coming up with was uh, in the middle of whatever it is they're doing. All of a sudden, the Fox logo comes up, and you see an advertisement for another show, and they do it again. They do it like two or three times, and by the third time, Stewie's like, "Can we finish one show before we start getting into the next show? Finish this." candy bar that you're eating, then move on to the next candy bar. And that's kind of what it felt like to me. It was just like, in the middle of this movie, we have, you know, or at the very end of this movie, we're, you know, we're, we're racing towards this movie, but we all want to see Parliament blow up. That's the big payoff here. That's where this gets going. And there's this, all of them, this huge distraction. I love you, Evie. Ugh. You know, we're shoving buddies. You know, two guys people with each other. That's the thing in, in a, a family guy. Now, I was, you know, the Western church, the way to describe it. 
I've, I've got an unrelated tangent on this. I'll, I, I would like everybody to have this say about this particular subject. When, when that's done, I've got, a, I've got something else I need to say about this movie and Natalie Portman in particular. But just uh, okay. you know, bookmark that for you know when everybody's had their say. It'll be the next thing we talk about. Winfrey, I love you, Winfrey. See, it's weird, right? (laughs) (laughs) Only because I know you're a liar. (laughs) What a twist. (laughs) Uh, No, it doesn't need to be there. I don't hate the fact that... How how do I phrase this? He actually does profess his love for her right before he dies in the book, but the whole dynamic between them in the book is very different from what it is in the movie. I appreciate the fact that if they're going to have him do stupid dialogue, at least it's on his deathbed. I mean, look, if I'm shot 30 times and I've just taken down a government, I think at that point I'm allowed to say something somewhat stupid. Uh, From a directorial standpoint, no, it's it's thrown in there. It's not even explained properly because they tried so hard. Like I think I agree with you that it's a studio note. If they, had, if he had simply followed up her, his, you know, no, I fell in love with you. With, uh, you know, I, I mean, he spent by his own admission twenty years preparing for this event. Suddenly, he has a human uh, contact with humanity again. Okay, he forms a slightly unhealthy attachment. I'll buy that. They just didn't explain it in any sense other than... And, I mean, I love you has so many different connotations. There's different types of love. This is all well documented. And I need to correct myself very briefly because I'm an idiot. When I mentioned earlier, uh, 1984, I erroneously said that uh, Orson Welles had written it. It's George Orwell, and I will break one of my fingers in penance for being that freaking stupid. I didn't even notice. I mean, I knew what you meant. Hey, I've, apparently I somehow dovetailed into calling Travis Brown Brendan Schaub on the last Ground and Pound show and just completely escaped <laughs> my mind. I, I know you don't do drugs. Have you really been hitting yourself in the head? No. Not as much. No, come on. How many we? I need to do it more, Mark. We haven't done a movie review in like a month. But my brain is missing the trauma. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but... Anyway, my point, uh, they tried to throw it in there. I mean, his attachment to her is displayed relatively well. I don't like some of the changes they made to the Eevee character for the movie. However, I understand it. My biggest gripe with the movie and the changes they made, honestly, they it's made very, very clear in the book that this particular fascist government in the tenets of certain other fascists, such as the National Socialist Party, uh, better known as the Nazis, for those of you unaware of that, uh, they're racist. As many as the, A great number of the people that they executed in these concentration camps like V was held in were black or Pakistani or, you know, they make a big point of that. In this movie, they go out of their way to fixate on, well, it's the homosexuals we don't like. And it's really mm-hmm. unne- it, it, it bothers me in the sense that I liked when they made it. They made a good point in the book about it being everyone. You know, it wasn't just they didn't single anything out. There's, I mean, they actually changed the uh, slogan of the government in the in the movie. It's uh, strength through unity, unity through faith. In the book, it's strength through purity and purity through faith. The fact that they moved a little bit 
closer and made a much bigger... I mean, Valerie's still gay in the book, and that's still kind of your touch point, your story of the, you know, your not-quite-survivor story, your diary of Anne Frank, if you will. Mm-hmm. But the fact that they went out of their way with the rest of the government to make it more homo- you know, more homophobia as opposed to just irrationally trying to control the sum total of their area of influence diminishes aspects of the story in a relatively significant way. And it really shouldn't be surprising considering the Wachowski sisters wrote this thing. Real quick. Um, before yeah, that's not a misstep. Um, I believe they've both come out as identifying as female. Super. I knew um, one of them had. Before we get to Rodney, didn't know both. Um, there's, you know, the, the Nazis, you know, coming for this and that. There are allusions allusion to Nazism um, in as far as weeding out the uh, the weak uh, and creating a, a society of the strong. It's not a new concept. There's a poem, I don't know if you guys have ever heard it, um, probably mispronounced the person's name. Martin Nymuller Muller firstly came to the socialists, and it basically goes, um, first it came to the socialists, and I not yeah, I was a socialist, then they came to the trade unionists, and I said, yeah, I was a trade unionist, then they came to the Jews, and this was on and on. Um, and at the end, it says, then they came to me, and there was no one left to speak. Um, and uh, uh, there's been different versions of this, like, the same idea. First they came for this, and they came for that, and finally they came for me. Um, and I think that's fairly well represented. I thought it was well represented. I didn't. I I think there was a little bit of focus on the on on, on the gay, but there are definitely black people and weirdos and you know whatever being loaded on and off trucks. So I, well, I, I got a, it. There's I, actually a specific scene in the movie that I wish they had, and Ben talked about a few of the a specific scene in the novel. When the inspector goes to this camp, Lark Hill, and doses himself with LSD, I really do wish they'd represented elements of that whole scenario better in the book, in the movie, because there's one in particular that the first time I read the book kind of, for some reason, punched me in the guts a little bit. As he's hallucinating, like you do when you're on LSD, he sees... I wouldn't know. I don't imbibe, but I have anecdotal evidence. <laughs> As he's going through this camp, because he he believes that the only way he's going to catch V is to get inside his head, and uh, I and this is an important part on that step. I don't, the drugs aren't necessary. Any profiler will tell you that. But he is trying to get inside this guy's head. And as he's in this camp, he sees again. He hallucinates. A bunch of the people who were there, uh, you know, some gay, some Indian, some black, and he laments what was lost by the way they behaved towards them, by their extermination. And it's a really poignant scene in the novel, and I really wish they'd been able to work that into the movie somehow, in no small part because uh, Stephen Ray is more than a capable enough actor to have done that whole kind of emotional journey justice. I would have just shown it. You would have had him go there and, you know, and just have and just do it in flash. You know, show, you know, fight shot on his face, flash, a shot of Pakistan in black, back to his face, gaze, back to his face, whatever. 
just keep going back and forth and you know and just seeing snippets of things that went on there around him. Um, they, they didn't need to be a rational explanation for somehow why he was being blasted. But it doesn't matter. It's cinema. It's film. Um, and you can no, his drug use in the book serves a very different purpose. Well, I don't want him to do drugs in this I'm no, no, I don't disagree. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not disagreeing okay. with you. I'm just pointing out that the hallucination from. Uh, I agree with you as far as setting it up properly. Could have been, uh, you know, you don't need hallucinogens in a visual medium to get across that point. Right. You're just, like like you're watching across the universe, in which case you better be high. Just show it. Now you, <laughs> you pull the story of Mark Hill through these flashes. The audience is with you and gets an idea of the horrendousness of this government. All right, Ronnie and then Jesse, and then we, uh, and then Ben had one more thing, and then we can start wrapping this up. Go, Ronnie. What? What? Okay. <laughs> um, I love you, I Ronnie. Ronnie. Uh, <laughs> right back at you, pal. Um, so I got caught up in, in, in thinking about and and looking up the Wachowskis real quick. What was the question again? <laughs> we were debating the merits of the romantic subplot. It's not actually oh, a subplot, but yeah. the point. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Right before he yeah, dies. I got lost. <laughs> um, I got lost. I apologize. But um, is, do you going back to what I said that they tried to humanize V a little more? Uh, in my opinion, they really, in his mannerisms and his speech and things like that. Of course, it's a book when I'm reading it. I read of him. I read him more as a, a focused, monotone kind of, not monotone, but a focused person. That, um, uh, but in this, he's he's a little more whimsical at, at points. Uh, well, I'm thinking back when, um, you know, he's cooking breakfast and and uh, you know the movie and things like that. Uh, Especially the movie scene, you kind of kind of kind of see it coming at that point of of them, you know, falling for each other. Because if you look at his mannerisms, the way he's sitting, he's sitting like a nervous teenager next to a girl that he really likes watching a movie. You know, the only thing is missing is him trying to hold her hand while they're on, you know sitting on the couch, you know, inching his hand closer to him. That's what Are I got putting out of it. The whole the yeah, the whole pillow. Oh, I wasn't doing that for. <laughs> But, uh, and that's how Mark met his first ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's American cinema. You're going to have to throw that element into it because you want your audience to stay connected, and they believe that's the only way. You know, sometimes that you can stay connected with a character is if he has that that human element of falling in love uh, once again. You know, one, uh, falling in love with whoever he has with him at that point. Uh, and you know, being the tra- you know being through the the traumatic situations he's been in, uh, that he latched onto the first person, you know, that he connected with, and and uh, either there's a whole lot of psychological elements that go with that. But I don't think it detracted in any way. It was definitely a grown moment of, you know, I've fallen in love with you. I'm like, ah, just blow something up, man. Just get it over. <laughs> this. Uh, go, do, go do some stabbing. Just just stab somebody, blow something up, and 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 get it over with. Uh, but it, it, I don't think it really took away, but it was definitely a groaner of a moment for me. Um, I'll go ahead and weigh in with my defense of it, which Ronnie may have touched on. 
And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and post a picture as soon as I can find your guys' uh, post here earlier. But, okay, she, she kisses V on the mask, okay? Now, one of the things that I saw was just how weird that was on, on, uh, on some of the YouTube stuff and the research I was doing. Like, why, you know, you, imagine how just strange that would be to walk up to somebody and kiss them on their mask. Okay, now here's my defense. Evie has um, has become a a lover of the. I would I would say she'd be she was on her way to becoming a lover of the reason V was fighting, and her kiss on the mask was a representation of her accepting the values that V stood for. And I, I, I can't remember if that particular part, I'm pretty sure that happened, you know, as, as things started coming towards the end, uh, where the whole love interest was, was at, but you know, that's the only thing I could say I, I could think of is that it symbolized her love and her acceptance for what V stood for. Which was, uh, you know, his his side of things, his uh, the anarchy, um, and showing the progress that she had made from what she was starting, all the way up until that one point. Now that's the only defense that I could come up with it, because that's the only part that I really got the whole. Uh, you said I I love you. When did that happen? Because I really honestly don't remember him saying that. Does he say that as right he's dying? Before he dies, he says I fell in love. Yeah. Those are literally you, his, his last words. No, no, in the his comic. last words. No, no, his last words are oh. after she says, "I don't want you to die." He just kind of quasi sardonically says, "You know, that's the most beautiful thing you could have said to me." Ah, now when did she kiss him? Because I know that happened. That caught my eye. Right before he takes off for his final confrontation with Creedy. Okay. All right. Now, right there, a kiss is obviously going to show that that right there was the point where I was like, oh, man, we're kind of getting into this. I don't remember that happening. Uh, that didn't happen in the book, did it? I, I certainly don't remember. Yeah, that it happening. did. It I'm, did. I am 90 percent mm. sure that, yeah, there is a scene where she kisses the mask. Okay. Yeah. All right. I always thought it was because that she got a good look at his hands and didn't want to, you know, knew there was the reason he wore it. Well, the guy was, or, I mean, he, he was should burned, have died. Right? The reality, you get third-degree burns or you know, even second-degree burns over that much of your body, you should die. My well, I, 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 I got um, Jesse, and, and I love you like a brother, but uh, the idea that you have a woman who's going to show someone that she supports his ideals and is with him through kissing almost makes it it, like, it took whatever I was feeling about it, and it, you've now made that even worse. <laughs> well, that's the way I took it, Mark Radlich. No, I know, and that's fine. But, I mean, you've made me hate it more, is my, is my point. I'm not that's like disagreeing with you. I hear you. The idea that all a woman can do to show someone appreciation and support is through something of, of a sexual uh, or romantic or intimate nature... And I think you're right to a degree, and that and that's why it makes it even worse. Is we've now reduced 
an interesting character to get another Americanized all women can do in movies sex on. Oh, come on, man. Now, you you can't sit there and tell me that, you know, you. I have no doubt in my mind that you absolutely love your wife 100%. There's probably something that she has done in your life that's moved you so much that you had to kiss her. That is what happened here. She was so moved and, uh, you know, and just absolutely, you know, her mind was blown by what was going on that the only thing that she had left to do was to put a smoocheroo on the guy. Feel like there's not a snap of an orange. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Uh, as for the, well, wait, as for the I love you, I don't even remember it, so whatever. No one does. <laughs> if Mark had seen this movie, eight, if Mark had seen this movie three days ago and wasn't going to talk about it on a podcast, it wouldn't have it would not still be in his mind. It, that's how inconsequential it is. That's not an insult to Mark. That's just how little it means to the film. Mm-hmm. That bothered me on so many levels. All right. Um, it hurt my soul. You'll <laughs> yeah, weep that, silently as we go through the plugs. Set women back at least 20 years. All right. Um, ben, you wanted to, you wanted to, you wanted to add one more thing and then I final thought. Yeah, add one last thing that I wanted to bring up. It's worth mentioning. Um, I don't know uh, how big a fan of uh, Natalie Portman as an actress any of you are. I happen to be a very big fan of. I happen to be a very big fan of her. Hey, yeah, happen to be dope. Was that (laughs) dope in the prequels? Yeah, I'm getting. I'm getting to that. Hold on. That's that's basically what Shut I'm your mouth, Mark. to talk about. Natalie Portman was the bomb in Phantom. Mark, you're uh, history's greatest monster. Um, <laughs> he's up there. <laughs> okay. This V for Vendetta is the movie that Natalie Portman did immediately after the, the Star Wars prequels. Um... You've seen, you know, back from, you know, when she was 12 years old, you've seen movies that she's been in. Uh, In 2004, she got nominated for an Oscar for Closer. She's, you know, she's good. Uh, She was actually, you know, and and I don't know anybody's particular opinion of this, but I found her particularly uh, horrible in the Star Wars prequels. And then this is the movie that she immediately does after those movies, and then within the next five years, she's got an Oscar for Black Swan, which is a movie that I absolutely love. Um, It is a testament, I think, because the common thread in here, uh, you know, the common denominator here is, I think it is a testament to just how shit of a director George Lucas was in terms of dealing with actors where Natalie Portman can give that horrible a performance in three consecutive movies in a franchise go from being, you know, go from being pretty consistently good before that terrible in those movies and then on to something like V for Vendetta immediately after that and being an Academy Award winner within the next five years. 
I think it is a testament to just how shit of a director George Lucas is when it comes to dealing with actors. And that was really kind of all the proof that I needed. This movie's integral to the rehabilitation of her career. There's a reason that her, Ewan McGregor, and Liam Neeson are the only ones that came out of those movies with anything approaching the ability to continue working in the field after those movies. And the other other end of the spectrum is Jake Lloyd. I hear you guys My only question is, so love has blinded you? I feel like that's a reference to something that I don't know. It is. Nobody nobody finished that bit. <laughs> I have no Please idea. God in heaven, nobody, if anybody knows. I'm pretty sure I know the next line in that bit, and I'm not giving it to you, Mark. I am not giving, I'm not giving you the satisfaction. I want to so bad, but I'm oh, afraid we are going to hold down and murder me. Ben moment. Wait. We got an angry Ben moment finally. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, Ben. Ben. <laughs> angry Ben moments. Love them. That's em, not anger. Me. That's fear. <laughs> <laughs> not giving him the satisfaction. It's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, this is a great moment of dialogue. <laughs> Only because I'm so in love with you. The love has blinded you. Oh. So he just finishes the bit by himself anyway. <laughs> he's got he's to do it somehow. He's gotta, nobody's gonna I feel give like I need to quote Leon the professional just to erase that particular bit of intellectual bile from the world. <laughs> Imagine this is a greatly written comedy. It, it, it's so awesome. I mean, Pratt Falls galore. You know, Samuel Jackson going out a window. It's great. Um, you know, you've got to laugh at it. Any case. <laughs> no, I don't. I pulled, it, I pulled it all up on YouTube, and I was going to play it, but I'm not going to. For fear of my <laughs> life. <laughs> to Ben's point, I have said for years now that George Lucas isn't a director. He's a, a special effects technician. Um, and I think he has some interesting ideas in terms of story, but he needs a team of people around him to pull those stories out and make it into a make it into a feature. Um He's, he's not able to do it, and he certainly does not have a direct I, I I mean, I think the man is like a functional, you know, autistic when it comes to people. He, he doesn't know how to deal with them. Um, I, I honestly think that if George Lucas had just kind of produced the prequels, that here are some of my here's some ideas, and let me give it to a competent writer, and let's get a director who actually knows how to deal with people, we would have gotten much. I think we could have gotten what he was getting at but a much better told story and much better performances. But even the actors will tell you, George didn't give them any direction. It would just sort of stay the line, stay the line, stay the line, do shit in front of a green screen. So I don't blame Natalie Portman for that. Um, as far as this, I mean, it, it's hard to say how well, how good or bad the direction is. I didn't find a lot of missteps in a lot of the performances I didn't see a lot of incompetence in the set pieces, um, you know, or the action sequences. So I'm ha- I'm having a bit of difficulty saying this director is either good, bad, or indifferent. This oh. seemed like a competent picture. I'm not entirely sure how much direction she got. Um, Officially, you know, sorry, good. No, no, go, go, go. Well, 
officially the uh James McTeague is the the credited director of this movie. Um the the Wachowski's uh wrote the you know, wrote the adaptation of, of Moore's uh book and apparently they were second unit direct directing a lot of a lot of this movie. So I think it's kind of given rise to the, you know, to the the idea of, you know, just how much uh how much of this movie was James McTeague and how much of it was possibly the Wachowski's uh directing follow up films uh don't lend him a whole lot of credibility when it comes to this movie being exactly he is. Yeah, so we're talking about the man like, responsible for Ninja Assassin. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> which which the Wachowskis also like produced, didn't they? Like, probably. I, I, I think so. Anyway, the point is, you know, there's there, there's a uh, I don't know how much speculation, but I know at the time there was a little bit of you know questioning, you know, how whether or not you know, portions of this movie may or may not have been, if not ghost directed by the Wachowskis, then at least kind of by proxy through James McTeague. Um, kind of the same and, way that Kurt Russell actually directed Tombstone. Yeah. Or, you know, the whole popular, like, you know, Spielberg directed Poltergeist kind of, kind of thing. I don't know how true that is, but I, if you, if it was revealed to be true, it wouldn't surprise me at all. All right, um, Jesse. Any final thoughts? Uh, film versus the book. Um, in general, the discussion. Anything left unsaid? Any burning desires? Well, the only thing really that I want to say is that I'm very pleased that I had the opportunity to read the book. And this is the first time I've ever read V for Vendetta. I think I watched the movie a long time ago. Never had the opportunity to read the actual source material. Uh, and I was very pleased. So uh, if if I'll go ahead and tout out there to definitely pick up the book if you can and give it a read. It holds up to today, I think. Just It, it was mentioned that there are some dated references, which it does kind of get a little bit uh, – and it does feel a little dated because we're talking early 80s when this thing came out. But it the the overall theme of this book is – very relevant to what you see happening today. So um, pick it up. And if you get it, as for the movie itself, you know, compare, contrast, I enjoyed the movie as well. I had, I had a great time watching the movie. I watched it in my kitchen over on Saturday and uh, I was glued to the screen uh, there. You know, it's kind of hard to sit on a kitchen seat and watch uh, a movie and, and not want to get out of there and go do something else. And I was hooked. So uh, very good, uh, very good book. Probably one of the best that we've uh, covered so far. Ronnie Adams, Burning Desire. Yes. Um, no, I just I agree with Jesse, and uh, this being one of my favorite Alan Moore um, books, uh, more so than than uh, like From Hell and a few others. But uh, I think the I think the movie holds up well, and you know holds up to the legacy of the of the book really well. And uh, I've been, I enjoyed both. Uh, uh, it, Hugo Weaving really brought V to life for me, and uh, that's one of the things I really enjoyed most about the movie. Uh, Benjamin Cologne. Can we, can, we get a, can we get more Angry Ben? An Angry Ben burning desire? <laughs> Don't make him become Angry Ben. That just happens naturally. Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm, 
I don't I don't go looking for things to be angry at. You just kind of <laughs> like push them in front of me like like a deer in front of my car. Uh, <laughs> now this this book is tremendous. It it kind of, you know, it it's it's an it's an emotional favorite of mine. It's a sentimental favorite of mine. Uh it's it's well written. It's well drawn. Like I I I had the privilege of meeting uh, David Lloyd uh, once. I have a sketch that he did in crayon of V hanging on my wall. It is very uh, special to me. Um, I love virtually everything about this story, and um, it, it's a big influence on me as a writer and an artist as well. Um, just uh, can't say enough good things about it. It's it's great. Robert Winfrey, hit it. Uh, this is easily the best adapted Alan Moore work. I don't think it's very close. I actually enjoy Watchmen. It wasn't on that podcast, mm-hmm. but I enjoy Watchmen as a movie. I I think this is the best adaptation of Alan Moore's work. Uh, period, full stop, hands down, walk away from the table. Uh, potential argument for the season of Constantine we got on NBC a couple, uh, what, two years ago? Because Hellblazer is, uh, I believe, done originally by Alan Moore. So I'll hear that argument potentially. But uh, other than that, this is the best. It's easily the best movie. And. Uh, I like both. It's this is one of those instances where you know we talk about which is better. I don't think there's a better here. You might prefer one over the other based on you know what you enjoy as a consumer. But the book is well written. It's well drawn. It's well paced. There's no real complaints with it. The movie is well shot, well well written, well acted, competently directed. Very few complaints, again, apart from random tacked-on love interest. It's uh, This is some of the best of Moore's work. It's certainly the best of his kind of standalone stuff in a lot of ways. I mean, if you get into some of his uh, serialized runs, then the discussion changes completely. But as a, you know, as a graphic novel, it stands... You know, it's still good. I could still read it easily. And the movie holds up very, very well. Uh, it's still very interesting. The action is still good. It's a, again, well-made and relatively intelligent movie in the sense that interesting things are going on on screen the whole time. There's no uh, pointless explosions. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, I think I've talked a lot during this podcast. I think I've said funny. Um, I don't really have any other closing thoughts other than I really like the movie. I fell asleep on it the first time. That's not a measure of the movie itself. I used this entirely. Um, <laughs> during the first time, that whole period is very hazy. Um, so I'm going to throw it over to you, Jesse, to take us on out. All right. Well, uh, let's do it. We'll go ahead and get into plugs here. Um, I'll go ahead and plug here for the Source Material Podcast. Check it out on Mondays. We're uh, we're in the midst of He-Man month, mini comics, the He-Man September mini comic spectacular, something like that. I can't remember what it is. It's midnight. Um, but anyway, it's uh, it's we're in we're we just got done with the third episode. It's only about twenty minutes long. You can check it out. We're talking about 
Uh, I believe this this past week was Stinkor and Hordak Slime Pit. Those were a couple stories that I picked. Now, upcoming this coming Monday is our fourth and final mini comic. Uh, spectacular should be about a half hour long where Justin Thomas gets on there gives us another couple stories uh, at Stiznarchy on Twitter you can also follow the show at Source Matt Cast on Twitter go ahead and give the Rattlech and Broadcasting Facebook page a like you can stay up on top of all the great podcasts that are out there uh, to uh, and we, we're not going to bombard you with a bunch of stuff give it a like you, if there's a podcast coming up all we do is notify you and then share a funny picture along with it. That's usually about it. So uh, I want to thank everybody out there that's listened tonight. Uh, if you guys enjoyed this podcast, please, please, please give some thought about sharing it and letting somebody else know about it. Maybe you know somebody that really enjoys Alan Moore's work, somebody that really enjoys V for Vendetta. Maybe somebody enjoys the Wachowskis, the Wachowskis and their films. Please, by all means, let them know this podcast is out there. And podcasts are great, fun, fun, beats talk radio to a pulp we're, we're, we're you know gotta love niche radio uh other than that uh i'll go ahead and i'll, I'll let uh, ronnie adams and then uh, winfrey and then benjamin j clone and mark you can plug whatever you got there man uh please by all means go ahead there ronnie adams what you got to plug man sweet um we actually i'm uh, as well as being on source material i'm i have a show called uh, screaming boy podcast it is a nerd culture uh type podcast where we just discuss you know uh topics of the day and uh mostly stuff that we like you know that that pop culture references things like that um we uh have several shows that are in you know that are in the can ready to be released uh will be so in the next couple of days um as for um you know, past shows we uh, we just got done with um, uh, episode six with Josh Kalanders and I. We did the first three ep- uh, issues of Civil War Two, Mar- Marvel's newest arc, and we'll be continuing that later on as as it goes. Uh, we did Never Ending Story that's it's just just released. We did uh, we covered CM Punk's disastrous UFC debut, and in the same show we d- discovered or we, we discussed. The hand grenade of a of a cell phone, the uh, Samsung Note Seven. Uh-huh. Uh So all kinds of stuff. We're all over the board. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, you can catch us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and the Radio Broadcasting Network. Um, you can find us on uh, Twitter at Screaming Boy PR. You can also find us. Uh, yes, that's as in uh, <laughs> Screaming Boy PR. <laughs> public relations. Uh, public publicly re- relations. You can catch us on Instagram, Screaming Boy Podcast. You can just look us up on Facebook by typing in the same thing, Screaming Boy Podcast, www.screamingboy.com. Uh, reach out to us, listen to us, share. Uh, and that's pretty much it. All right. Robert Winfrey, sir. How have you not been offered a ton of money for the Screaming Boy domain yet? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but it is ours. They're crossing uh, their fingers and hoping it happens. I mean, I, well, I just have somebody, to imagine. If, some, if somebody offers it, I mean, you know, I'm willing. I'm willing to take some, uh, take, uh, uh, and they will uh, be know, entertain some offers. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can find me most Sunday evenings hosting the 411 Ground and Pound radio show. 
a weekly show devoted to the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Uh, this Saturday, if you're interested in MMA as a sport in the MMA zone of 411mania.com, I will be covering UFC Fight Night 95? Five or six? Five. Uh, <laughs> Cyborg versus Landsberg. UFC's returning to Brasilia, Brazil. Uh, not a bad card, actually, all things considered. Uh, this week we will be reviewing that and previewing UFC Fight Night 96, Lineker versus Dodson. I am very much looking forward to that uh, because John Lineker and John Dodson, despite being bantamweights, are heavy punchers and love to throw down. So really good main event. Uh, this Tuesday, Mark Radlich and I are back on the review horse. We will be reviewing the Magnificent Seven remake, and I will likely talk about more unnecessary explosions because I've seen a few more extended trailers, and uh, yeah, this one could be a rough one, folks. <laughs> ah. So Mark and I will be reviewing that uh, again Tuesday at 9.30 Eastern Time here on the Radlich and Broadcasting Network, and I will be back next week as we wrap this up by looking at From Hell because I just want an excuse to yell at Johnny Depp. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Benjamin J. Cologne, my man. Thanks for joining us tonight. Please plug your stuff. Hey, thanks for having me and uh, allowing me a forum to talk about V for Vendetta and to yell at Mark for quoting the Star Wars prequels. Uh, don't do it again. Uh, okay, uh, plugs. As, as always, as ever, I write, draw, self-publish a comic called Soul Exodus. You can find it uh, through my website, soulexo.com, uh, through my Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash soulexo, through Twitter, uh, at soulexocomic, S-O-U-L-E-X-O. Um I will be in about two weeks' time at New York Comic Con once again. Uh, my table number is 1269. Uh, this is October 6th through the 9th. Uh, I will be selling copies of Soul Exodus. I will be selling uh, a lot of my sketch cover art because I have a big old long box and it's almost full of uh, blank covers. Some of them have art on them. Some of them don't. I will be accepting commissions while I'm there. I'll be doing as much drawing as humanly possible in four days, and uh, hopefully I'll be having a good time of it. Um, one other thing, Soul Exodus is also available digitally through drivethroughcomics.com. If you are of the inclination to read comics on your tablet or other mobile device, you can uh, get them for download. You can purchase them for, down, uh, for digital download at drivethroughcomics.com, and I encourage you to do so. Um, for private commissions, individual commissions, I'm always up for that. You can hit me up either through Twitter or email me at bjc at soulexo.com. I also do artwork uh, for a little podcast that some of you may have heard of called Long Road to Ruin. Um, and if you haven't, I completely understand. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Great bunch of guys. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know any of you without uh, without it. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark Rattles, Sean Comer. Uh, I will be back on that uh, on that particular horse right around Harry Potter time, I believe, which is coming up. If Mark wants to give a date, then uh, he can tell him what. 
thought you had some non-related artwork for Hannibal Lecter. That too. See, I, I'm forgetting things already. Um, I've got. I'm really yeah, looking forward uh, to what you do for our review of the Hannibal Lecter movies. Well, I haven't decided if I'm going to do something wholly original for that. I may, but I also have a particular piece of Silence of the Lambs artwork that I did kind of just shits and giggles that I'll probably include that uh, I believe you've probably already seen, but um, we'll see. I may try to surprise you guys. Um, we'll see what happens. There's that. Then, you know, I'll be back right around Harry Potter time, most likely. Uh, which means I've got about eight movies to watch to uh, get ready for that and get me in the right frame of mind. Uh, it'll be uh, quite a chore, uh, but also probably a lot of fun. Um, and I'll be right back here next week, I guess, because apparently need from hell, an uh, undertaking that I have tried to previously... Uh, you know, two separate times uh, previously and have not been able to complete it. Uh, I've had this book for over, like, five or six years. Um, I'm trying my best to read read it as comprehensively as I can. It's a good book. I enjoy it very much, but I said earlier today to Robert, it's denser than Scottish fog. Um, (laughs) That's about right. <laughs> and about one-fifth of it is bibliography. That's how much research Alan Moore did in, in creating this book. Um, it is the most, probably the most densely researched thing that he's ever done, uh, possibly up until the novel that he just released, which uh, was edited down from, like, I think something like a million words. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, that should be, uh, you know, I got a lot on my plate for uh, the foreseeable future. But, uh, you know, yeah, next week from hell, um, I will try to, uh, you know, between me and Jesse, we'll probably try to do something to rein in uh, Robert's uh, sometimes <laughs> irrational hatred of Johnny Depp. <laughs> That'll be it's fun. not irrational. If such a thing is possible to be able to do. <laughs> Very well-founded hatred. <laughs> Fine. Uh, I, I, haven't seen the movie I will yet, appreciate so we'll the counterpoint. I have no problem with people who like Johnny Depp. And if my, seen... when, my hatred, when my hatred strays into the irrationality, I hope people inform me that I'm no longer basing my criticism on something valid. I actually haven't seen the the movie version of From Hell just yet. I'm I'm trying oh, to you, finish the book. I I envy envy I envy you. <laughs> I, 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 I have Johnny... to rewatch it before. I've seen it once. I have to rewatch it before next week. I'm about yeah. halfway through the book, and I I have a digital copy this time around. I am at I, I and I struggle reading digital the same way I read print. So. Uh, which I, I looked for a physical copy because I probably could have knocked that out in a day. Uh, it's a little bit tricky finding it. I mean, it's not impossible. It's it's available uh, online. I would have had to order it on Amazon and waited for a delivery, and it just wasn't worth Not on the time crunch, and I don't feel like owning it. Because at this point, I'm relatively convinced that From Hell is not as is not merely a reference to the famous letter uh, penned by Jack the Ripper, but actually the metaphysical location of this story and Alan Moore is warning us about it. 
Oh, interesting. And and that we can consider that a teaser for next week. <laughs> Mark Radlich. Sorry, I actually. Oh, I was please, saying, I Ronnie, had tell my hand, I had my hands on a uh, physical copy of From Hell, but uh, I hurt my back trying to read it. Oh, um, I was reading in bed and it fell on my face, knocked me out. Um, oh, with that, your I legs, was, man. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Mark Rattles, you still awake? Yeah. All I right. Was trying to, as you guys were making silly jokes, I was trying to come up with a line from Revenge of the Sith that I could quote, but I, I honestly was like, <laughs> you just want, um, you want to send, you want to send, you you want to send Benjamin off in a pissed off mood. That's wrong of you. <laughs> all right. Um. A couple of things. We do a little podcast on here called The Metal Hammer of Doom, where we uh, recently covered the new Brucuria album and the new single, Viva Presidente, from. Um, go ahead and give that a listen. It was great fun. Uh, next week, we are reviewing on Wednesday, assuming Coop is off. Uh, Every Time I Die, Low Teens, currently on Spotify, if you want to go check that out. Um, last week, Friday... Uh, I did a little thing called the Diet Diary. Um, Pat Mullen was on. We both told our stories. For those of you who have given me feedback on it, I appreciate you, and I will continue to be brutally honest about myself. It's the only way I'm going to get this done. Um, I had my way in today. I will talk about it tomorrow, uh, probably sometime during the afternoon if I can get my son to take a fucking nap. Um, <laughs> so I'm done with him being away. I'll be in the middle of like, so I'm really struggling with the daddy tickle me. All right. Um, so I'm tied to a chair and you know, watch Paw Patrol. Maybe I'll get it done that way. But um, now I'm planning on doing another diet diary uh, tomorrow, which would be Friday the 23rd. Um, as Robert said, we have a review next week. The week after that, um, we are uh, going to be reviewing Deepwater Horizon. Marvel's and Netflix's Luke Cage, so look for those as well. Uh, yes, November is Harry Potter month. Almost every week in the month of November, starting November 3rd, we will be looking at two Harry Potter movies um, with the exception of the week of Thanksgiving. Uh, and As far as Long Road to Ruin goes, that comes back in October. And As we alluded to before, we will be doing two shows on the four Hannibal Lecter movies. Um, I need to apologize again to everyone. Mark asked if we should consider Hannibal Rising part of the collective, and I said yes for the sake of completionism. I didn't realize that he was going to take me seriously enough to include it. I apologize to everyone who has to listen to us talk about that, and to Mark and Sean, who I don't believe have seen it yet. Uh Uh-oh. It's going to be exciting. So, yeah. We've I'd got, rather talk uh, about our, the television movie. show than, the, than that movie. movie. Oh, yeah. Well, horror, third try. Our horror movie for this year at Long Road to Ruin will be uh, the Hannibal Lecter series. Um, got one picked up next year already. Want to hear it? I got somewhere. Yeah. Right here. Where, where is it? Where is it? What's next year's horror movie? Um, have my notes all around. Ah, here we go. Uh, next year's horror movie franchises from Dust Till Dawn. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh-oh. Yeah, no reaction there. Sex machine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
the crotch, the crotch pistol. Oh man, I can't take that pistol seriously because the transference of energy and heat would just make it unusable. <laughs> you and your gun science. I can't take that uh, that pistol seriously because it pops up from his crotch. All right, and that's mainly why. Thank you, Jesse. Um, sorry, you had all the technical problems you had tonight. Thank you, Benjamin, for calling in. Lonnie, uh, Winry, love you guys. We'll see. You guys. <laughs> we'll see, uh, see you next week, Thursday. Our last installment of Alan Mormon uh, from Hell, the books, the movie, the play, the novel, the Broadway musical, the whole nine yards, everything about it, and a little Pirates of the Caribbean talk because you know Johnny Depp. Right. So here's the Simpsons. Talking uh, some Alan Moore for everybody here at the Rattles and Broadcasting Network to go to safe and be <gasps> Look at all these alternative comic book creators. Alan Moore, Art Spiegelman, oh, Dan Klaus. I really identified with the girls in Ghost World. They made me feel like I wasn't so alone. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Do you know anyone who works at Batman? Because I really want to draw Batman. I'm awesome at utility belts. Check these out. This is where the Batman keeps his money, in case he has to take the bus. Mm-hmm. Alan Moore, you wrote my favorite issues of Radioactive Man. Oh, really? So you like that I made your favorite superhero a heroin-addicted jazz critic who's not radioactive? I don't read the words. I just like when he punches people. How do you make his costume stick so close to his muscles? <sighs> Mr. Moore, will you sign my DVD of Watchmen Babies? Which of the babies is your favorite? You see, what those bloody corporations do, they take your ideas and they suck them. Suck them like leeches until they've gotten every last drop of the marrow from your bones. Hey, Seacup, why don't you chill out? Very well. <laughs> Oh, little Lulu, I love you, Lou, just the same. <laughs> <laughs>